That is our focus today, which is the role of partnerships in looking backward uh, in the response to COVID-19 and looking forward to how we can uh, deepen, improve, broaden uh, those partnerships. Um, with COVID-19 now diminishing, but certainly not disappearing, it's a really good time to look back and look forward, looking back at what worked and what didn't and look, looking forward uh, to how we can do better the next time we face an infectious disease outbreak, a bioterrorist attack, or a, an accidental release of a dangerous uh, pathogen uh, from a laboratory. This morning, uh, we have two witnesses that we could not have better witnesses to help us answer those questions past and future. First, Dr. Raj Panjabi, Special Assistant to the President, Director of Global Health Security and Biodefense at the National Security Council. Uh, uh, Dr. Punjabi has uh, developed a, re a relationship with this commission, which is, I'd say, collegial and, and, and a partnership, really, in, in the theme of the day, and we, we're grateful for it. Uh, second, we'll have Dr. Anthony Fauci, Chief Medical Advisor to President Biden uh, and the Director of... Uh, uh, the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases at uh, NIH. Earlier this month, the White House released a progress report uh, on its, what I, I believe is its big and, and uh, correct vision, 2021 American Pandemic Preparedness Plan. It was a progress report and also um, a, a series of recommendations as to how to more comprehensively implement uh, that plan. There's a lot in a report to encourage us about what's happened in the last year, and there's much also in it that reminds us of the work that we have ahead of us, which we will do best as partners, uh, and uh, together hopefully offer a plan for doing that work uh, together uh, most effectively. Um, we're grateful uh, that the administration's work, uh, which has been guided as the original uh, um, promulgation of a national biodefense strategy by President Trump was um, by our, uh, our not so much guide, but we like to think influenced by our foundational report and our uh, subsequent reports on the Apollo project uh, for, for biodefense. But uh, Dr. Panjabi and, and Dr. Fauci have obviously um, played a, a really important role uh, in um, uh, constructing uh, the uh, administration's approach to this uh, uh, a really important uh, problem that we've faced and are now somewhat moving away from. But uh, we also know, uh, as I said earlier, uh, we've got a lot more to do. So, um, as I say, for a former senator, that was a pretty brief introduction. <laughs> and uh, I look forward to the witnesses. And now, uh, is Governor Ridge uh, with us by? Yes, okay. Uh, Governor Ridge is coming in by uh, Zoom, and uh, our dear friend, my, our co-chair of the commission, and uh, I'd ask him at this point. Hey, Tom, good morning. Uh, you're looking good. Uh, I would uh, ask you, uh, Governor, if you'd like to say a few words of opening uh, statement. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll come back. Let, let me ask him. Um, the other uh, members, uh, if they'd like to say a few words in opening, uh, first, Senator Daschle. Well, thank you, Joe. Let me welcome Dr. Punjabi as well and thank him for his extraordinary public service and leadership in this 
such an important endeavor. We salute you and the administration for the work you're doing and putting the plan and recommendations together, and it'll be the subject of uh, a lot more consideration here in this organization. I uh, think we've learned a great deal in the last two years, but I hope we can all take away uh, the realization that without a public-private partnership, our ability to deal with any pandemic or crisis is almost impossible. We saw that with vaccines. We've seen that with virtually every medical supply uh, necessary to combat the pandemic. My fear is that, as we have witnessed with other pandemics in the past, uh, we have this rush to respond, and then we have this tendency to forget. And I worry that we're already in that mode of forgetting. And I'm very hopeful that it's meetings like this and it's work like yours and it's the partnership that we hope we can create publicly and privately to ensure that we don't forget, that we do a better job of preparing for the next time. And we know it will be be a next time. So shame on us if we don't learn. Shame on us if we forget. Uh, let's find a way to work together to prepare better for the next time, and hopefully we can talk more about that today. Uh, thanks, Tom. Uh, uh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it could be that in the next chapter of this commission's history, we can summarize our work with two words that we'll probably repeat a lot. Don't forget. Don't forget. Uh, Congressman uh, Greenwood. Thank you, Joe. Having not served in the Senate, but the House. I'm used to being told that the chair recognizes the gentleman for 30 seconds. So um, I will yield back before my time expires. Oh, that's great. I was going to give you a minute. <laughs> I'll never forget the first time I did a press conference with a couple of people from the House. And uh, they had about, they're so accustomed to time limits. That I'm Ed Markey. He was, I did it with him. Within two minutes, he had, he had spoken five really quotable lines. And uh, at, in my first two minutes, I basically said hello. <laughs> you know. Anyway, uh, Secretary, Congresswoman, Chancellor, our dear friend, Donna Shalala. <laughs> Thank you. I'll, uh, I'll also uh, reserve uh, my right to uh, uh, comment uh, later in the program, so I yield back to you, Senator. Thank Lever. you. And here. Thanks for being here on time, and uh, we look forward to hearing you now. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, push that button, and I think it'll. Okay, yep, that'll great. do it. Am I coming through? Okay, yep. great. Well, let me just say thank you, and I, I to all of you. I, I, I too have felt a deep sense of of collegiality and partnership with all of you, as I've mentioned to a few of you. I'm even a report carrying, uh, uh, unofficial. In many ways, um, champion of what you all are doing. The the reports sit at my desk in the National Security Council. Um, several of the reports you all have put forward. I, I want to thank you, Senator Lieberman, Governor Ridge, uh, who's I know on the line, to all of the commissioners and to ex officio members as well as to Asha for her work with Ambika, and thank you for inviting me to speak here today on behalf of the administration. Over many years, this commission has helped make our nation safer and our world safer from infectious diseases and biological threats. I'm truly grateful for your leadership and my role in support of President Biden and the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan uh, is really to work with my team to at the National Security Council to coordinate efforts across government to prepare for 
and respond to pandemic and biological threats. As you know, infectious diseases that kill many people, cross borders, disrupt societies and economies are a existential threat to our national and global security. Uh, I know this is a, now as a, as a, in policy and government, but I've seen this firsthand before coming to government. I, I came here to America, as I've told you before, over 30 years ago after my family fled Liberia's civil war. The war had nearly crushed my dreams, but thanks to the help of Americans that took my family in, thanks to the great education this country provided me, I had a chance to become a doctor and an epidemiologist. And before joining government, I had the privilege for years of serving patients, families, and communities in, uh, that were affected by infectious diseases. That work took me on home visits in uh, corners of West Africa, in rural villages with community health workers who were responding to history's worst Ebola outbreak. It also brought me to the neighborhoods near Boston where nurses were delivering COVID vaccinations in mobile vans on street corners. What I've learned through that is that we're not defined by the pandemic threat. We're defined by how we respond. And how well we respond depends on how well we prepare, as you have pointed out already. Uh, as a doctor, just to put a, a you know, I, I tell my patients we build muscle to respond by using muscle to prepare. And today I want to cover two things. I want to first describe the scale and scope of the biological threat as we see it in the administration. And then I want to share how the administration is preparing for and responding to the biological threat, focusing on three key priorities. I will highlight what we've done, what more we'd like to do, and why we need the partnership of Congress to get it done. When I give a patient a new diagnosis, I tell them there's bad news and good news. So let me just start with the bad news first. The biological threat, no doubt, is growing. The numbers alone are staggering. Let me give you a few. One million. That's the number of Americans and counting that have died from COVID-19 with millions more around the world who've died from this disease. My immunocompromised aunt amongst them. 40 million. That's the number of chickens and turkeys that have been depopulated across 30 states during this outbreak of bird flu or highly pathogenic avian influenza. That has cost our farmers and our country at least a quarter of a billion dollars thus far in this outbreak. 50%, that's the risk some modelers project of another pandemic like COVID or worse than COVID in the next 25 years, not the next 100 years, the next 25 years, the risks of outbreaks are growing. Deforestation, I've seen it firsthand, exposes humans to zoonotic diseases or re-emerging infectious diseases that leap from animals to humans. Urbanization and weak health systems in rural areas in particular makes it easier for these diseases to spread from human to human. In the poorest corners of our world, and modern air travel means that those diseases can reach the United States in less than a day. There's so many examples of naturally occurring diseases and threats, but they're also the threat of accidental diseases, accidental lab accidents, for instance, the advances in biotechnology as the president signaled in his recent bioeconomy executive order uh, will contribute, it's estimated, $30 trillion of economic value in the next decade. At the same time, 
that increases our risk if biosafety measures are not in, put in place of laboratory accidents when it comes to infectious diseases. And Senator Daschle, you know personally that these threats can be deliberate as well. The anthrax attacks of 2001 that you and others experienced uh, remind us of that, and that threat has not dissipated. It is growing. Now let me share some good news. Even in the face of a pandemic threat and biological threats, progress is possible. Let me offer again a few numbers to put this in perspective. 600 million. That's the approximate number of COVID vaccinations that have been administered to Americans across the country during this campaign. That's also approximately the number America has procured and delivered for 116 countries around the world. 20 million. That's the number of lives estimated to be saved by COVID vaccines globally, according to The Lancet in the year 2021, with over 2.3 million lives being saved in America, according to a separate independent Commonwealth report. 900 billion, that's the number of dollars in 2021 that we saved due just to the US COVID vaccination program because of prevented hospitalizations and the care that we provided. That is not enough. We have to have a sense of biological humility in the face of this threat. And that's why we believe we can be better, we can be faster, we can be more equitable in responding to current threats and future ones. To end the pandemic threat as we know it, we believe we must create a 21st century biodefense enterprise that makes our nation and world safer. And that's what we've been working towards since his first day in office, as you know, President Biden mandated that we review our current biodefense policy landscape and develop a revised national biodefense strategy to ensure that we are better prepared for the next biological threat. In March, the president sent Congress a historic five-year, $88 billion mandatory request as part of his FY23 budget for biodefense, for pandemic preparedness, and for global health security. Informed by that work, I want to highlight what we're focusing on, where we want to do more, and what partnership and resources we need from Congress to get it done in three key areas. One, medical breakthroughs. Two, investments in the nation's public health systems. And three, strengthening health security around the world. Let me, let me start with medical breakthroughs. A year ago, the National Security Council and our fantastic colleagues at the Office of Science and Technology Policy released the American Pandemic Preparedness Plan. That plan laid out a roadmap to drive towards the necessary scientific and technological breakthroughs that will help to take the consequences of pandemic threats off the table. The plan drives American innovation towards bold goals in areas such as developing vaccines within 100 days of a novel virus with pandemic potential, therapeutics suitable for all viral families before or in the early stages of a pandemic, and rapid diagnostic tests available in homes within weeks, not months, after the recognition of a pandemic threat. Those are the aspirational bold goals put forward in that plan. We can think of these breakthroughs as an arsenal of hope. And that, what I have just shared, is just a strategic overview. As you mentioned, my dear friend, colleague, and mentor, Dr. Tony Fauci, without whom much of this work um, would really not be possible, 
he'll get into more detail in each of these areas. But let me highlight what we've asked of Congress. In his FY23 budget request, the president asked for $40 billion spent over five years to accelerate these efforts in medical breakthroughs. Specifically, this request includes over $12 billion for advanced development of vaccines and therapeutics against high-priority viral families and biothreats, $15 billion for surge manufacturing capacity for the administration for strategic preparedness and response, and $12 billion for NIH to invest in American basic research, the same type of research that allowed us to develop a vaccine for COVID-19 in record time. The administration commissioners wants to do more to invest in medical breakthroughs. We invite Congress to join us in partnership. But medical breakthroughs are not enough. To create a 21st century biodefense enterprise also requires investing in the nation's public health systems. And that is our second priority. One key area in this effort is to ensure we have greater risk awareness and early warning systems that are more functional and more effective and faster. We've worked to scale wastewater surveillance in many parts of the country, that technology is already being used to help us detect COVID-19. And we're working with state and local partners to expand its use for polio in places like New York State and also for monkeypox. We can think of this as an outbreak radar that helps us detect pathogens faster, even if they spread silently. And earlier this spring, again, within the focus of public health systems, the administration launched a new center for forecasting and outbreak analytics to enable timely, effective decision-making to improve outbreak response using data, modeling, and analytics. What does this mean? We have a national weather service that helps us forecast hurricanes. We can think of the center for outbreak analytics and forecasting as a center that's a national service for forecasting infectious diseases. The president has requested of Congress $28 billion as a mandatory five-year request for the CDC to enhance our early warning system. And because all outbreaks start and stop in communities, this funding would also help make complementary investments in local health infrastructure. It's often said all politics is local, all outbreaks ultimately are local, and that's why we've also got to invest in disease detective, community health workers, and public health workers that can ensure that we have equity in the way we prepare and respond. We know those workers have been too neglected for far too long. Commissioners, the administration wants to do more to invest in our health system. We invite Congress to join us in partnership. And that brings me to our third major priority. Infectious diseases, this commission knows, does no, no borders. Infectious disease, no, no borders. And that's why there's no real domestic-only response when it comes to global health threats. Our vision for a 21st century, therefore, to our vision for a 21st century biodefense, I should say, must look beyond our shores. That's why we've prioritized global health security in the same request. In addition to making over 600 million COVID vaccines available around the world, as I said earlier, Thanks to Congress, we are providing more than $19 billion in additional COVID-19 assistance to get those shots into arms, to ensure we reach the highest risk and hardest to reach, that we expand access to tests and treatments, 
and help prevent future variants that would affect us here. But while we do that, we are also preparing for the next epidemic. We've expanded the number of countries in our bilateral global health security programs and working closely with the G20 and other countries to try to multilateralize these efforts. The United States has helped lead the charge to establish a groundbreaking new fund for pandemic prevention, preparedness, and response at the World Bank. And like our bilateral programs, this pandemic fund will help us partner with countries to stop outbreaks wherever they start, and that can help us prevent future pandemics. You can think of this as biodefense beyond our shores. For these efforts, the President has requested $6.5 billion in FY23 to be spent over five years at the State Department and USAID. $4.5 billion of this would support the pandemic fund at the World Bank. Commissioners, the administration wants to do more to invest in global health security, and we invite Congress to join us in partnership. I've laid out this morning three major priorities the administration is focused on in taking steps to be faster, to be more equitable, to make our nation and our world safer. And soon, we will finalize the new national biodefense strategy, along with an actionable implementation plan so that we can ensure the American people can hold their government accountable for continued progress in each of these and other areas. Now, let me end where I began. Today, it's said we live in a moment of contradiction. Some say we are entering an age of pandemics. But I think we're also entering an age where bold investment, bold partnership, bold action between the administration and Congress can help us take the pandemic threat off the table. It can help us end the pandemic threat as we know it. That's possible, and I look forward to discussing that with you. I'm happy to take any questions you have, and thank you again for asking me to be here. Uh, thanks, uh, Dr. Punjabi. I tell you, your testimony was not only excellent, but um, it's really quite encouraging, I think, to me and other members of the commission, because if you look back at our reports, beginning with our foundational report in 2015 and then through the Apollo uh, recommendation, Apollo program for biodefense, and then Athena following on about implementation, <clears throat> um, the, the, uh, you, you are you're really uh, embracing a lot, not that we uh, originated any of that, but uh, it's very validating for us, and we uh, thank you for that. That's why we want to help you. I mean, your vision is exactly right, and the details are as bold as they need to be. And, uh, the, the dollar numbers are big, but uh, as you know, and you, you've uh, said to us before, the, the dollar numbers of the cost of the COVID-19 pandemic dwarf the, the amount of money that the administration, the president, is asking for this um, uh, program, and that's not evaluating the loss of a million plus lives here in America. So um, let me ask you, because um, you, you talked a lot about uh, Congress appropriately. Um, Congress has the power to appropriate. And um, um, the, I guess my question is, what, what kind of reaction are you getting from Congress so far to the these recommendations, but also the significant uh, dollar requests. Well, the the uh, so far it's the I think Congress recognizes the need for these kinds of investments. Um, 
I think the form of the request being a mandatory request uh, has been challenging in some ways for them to uh, consider. Our intent had been to treat this as a security threat. It, do, it is. Um, we treat military spending similarly. We give five years of mandatory funding. Right. Um, it, I don't know. There's very few, few things, if anything, that's killed as many Americans as this pandemic has. And so it feels the responsible thing to do to request the kind of financing that allows our public health agencies, our global health agencies. But let me also highlight, uh, you know, I've talked a lot about those agencies, but there are over 24 departments and agencies have worked with us on this revised national biodefense strategy with which this FY23 request is aligned. So this is also defense spending that's important. Uh, it is important for our intelligence community capabilities. And all of that uh, is vital. I think um, you know we're actively having continued conversations, Senator, with, with Congress on this. I think what would be good to see is the level of urgency to what Senator Daschle said earlier, that we've applied to responding. When we want to use our muscle for responding, we're there. And look at the things we've tried to, uh, we've worked to achieve. Um, that's not to, it's actually in honor of the people who are losing their lives to work to do more. That's why there's a supplemental request. But at the same time, we have to build our muscle with the same fierce urgency to prepare to respond. And that's what these investments are about. So we need to see more of that as we look into the coming weeks. Well, I think I, I feel confident I can speak for the other members of the commission and saying that if there's any way we can help you in building the productive partnerships with Congress on this proposal. Um, we'd like to do it. I mean, just look at the six of us, uh, uh, Governor Ridge and the five of us here. We're, we're all former members of Congress. And um, so if we can give you counsel or we can actually help in making the case to Congress, uh, we'd, be, uh, we'd be glad to do it. Um, one more question. Yeah. Um, looking back, and uh, I know it's big, so you're not going to be able to answer it with the um, the comprehensiveness that, that you have. Looking back at the last couple of years of COVID-19 uh, and focusing on partnerships, which is our topic today, what uh, partnerships would you say have worked best and, and which, um, which need improvement or, or didn't work at all? Yeah. Well, I, I think with the private sector, uh, it's clear the results show um, the efforts, uh, you know, even under the prior administration to get Operation Warp Speed going, right. to invest in research and development with the private sector, helped accelerate the development of COVID vaccine. That came as a partnership, really, between uh, groups like Tony Fauci's, the National uh, Institutes for Health, and the public investments that have been made in some of the the vaccine technology that helped us, uh, like the mRNA technology that helped us. Uh, fight coronaviruses, but also the scale and ability of the private sector to rapidly accelerate production. I think the other partnership that perhaps has not as been highlighted sufficiently um, is partnerships with local communities. Yeah. Uh, I've seen it again and again. You know, we, we, we face massive deficits in trust when crises happen, including crises like this that affect people most intimately their lives, their health. 
And the way to build that trust is not when a crisis happens only. It's everyday trust we have to build. And the way to build that trust is in partnership uh, uh, with those communities. In, in places as far-flung as rural Alaska and in parts of rural Africa, governments hire the people most affected to be part of the team. Uh, when we've applied that effort, uh, that approach, I should say, here uh, with the COVID-19 Community Corps, uh, for instance, uh, we see tremendous results. It's taking people from the community. It's giving more funding to local community-based organizations. We can see a difference. I'll just give you one anecdote to just put this in context. When I was prior to coming to the administration, or actually while I was in it, just volunteering uh, moonlighting, I guess, uh, volunteering uh, moonlighting it, at a at a community-based vaccination site uh, about a year ago in near Boston. Um, that community, Chelsea, Massachusetts, was the epicenter of the pandemic in Massachusetts. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a poor community, but very resilient. The community requested a grant from the CDC that allowed them to bring vaccines to a community center where they had been doing literacy and educational and cultural programs, not a clinic, yeah. a, a education center. They then asked a number of their own staff to go door to door for the week prior to have people register for their appointments, give them hand sanitizer, masks, and even because a lot of people were losing their jobs where they could get employment. Uh, we were there on a Sunday and it was the first day the clinic opened. This is a community that was 40 percentage points at that time below the, the statewide average in terms of COVID vaccination. Uh, that day, 300 people showed up to get vaccinated. Uh, seven of us were volunteering uh, from from the local academic hospital. And they applied that again and again in similar clinics through community-based efforts. And within four weeks, four weeks, this place that was about 40 percentage points off caught up with the statewide average. That same approach is what we need with polio right. in, in New York to try to get vaccination coverage up. It's the same approach that we're taking with monkeypox. My great colleagues, Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis and, uh, and Bob Fenton, uh, you know, I have been working to the credit of the gay, bisexual uh, community and the men who have, and men who have sex with men. Uh, they have been community-based, meeting people where they are. But it, it, that is, um, you know, is what we need to build trust in this effort. It's also what we need to have a faster response, but also better preparedness. Why can't we keep that muscle strong in between these big outbreaks and epidemics? I think that's another area where we need further investment. Okay, that was uh, really helpful. Thank you. Uh, is Governor Ridge with us or no? Um, it doesn't look like a... Uh, Secretary Shalala. Yes, um, I actually have a number of questions. I did want to yeah. say the scope of practice, who can give vaccines, will turn out to be very important, too. I went to get yeah. my flu shot. Um, my flu shot had to be given by the pharmacist. My COVID booster... Uh, was given by a technician, and when I asked the question, the pharmacist, the new, the rules were that a technician could give the booster shot, but a pharmacist had to give the flu shot. <laughs> so, as a Peace Corps volunteer in the 1960s, yeah. my colleagues and I, we were 21 years old, inoculated thousands of people in northern Iran, 
with no scope of practice requirement saves thousands of kids uh, in the process. So looking at the scope of practice across the country on how quickly your community-based people, well-trained people under some supervision can, can do a lot of this. And that, I, I think the scope of practice thing has started to be worked out in the states, but it's something that's important to look at. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, because this new um, forecasting mm -hmm. uh, process, what, where is that located and what's, what's the relationship with the CDC tracking system? And, and I've asked you before about lab facilities yeah. as part of the overall strategy. Could you ex explain how that's going to work? Yeah, thank, thank you, um, Secretary, for, for that for those questions. The Center for Forecasting Outbreaks and, uh, and, and for Analytics, as we call it, CFA, uh, is, is housed at the CDC. That's the main uh, institute. That's the main. Is it part of the reorganization of the CDC. It is. It is something that predated the reorganization, but it is in part uh, something that will help advance some of the efforts to be more responsive to uh, ensuring, uh, as Director Walensky has highlighted, the need to ensure that the information the CDC produces is more patient-centric, consumer-centric, public-centric. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, the CDC has, uh, in many outbreaks, produces an excellent morbidity MMWR report. Uh, it's good for experts and, and academics. Uh, it's slower in, in getting out information during an outbreak. But they recently, with the help of the CFA, uh, actually produced a technical briefing mm -hmm. um, that is publicly available, that tries to make the information more digestible, mm -hmm. allows you to see the outbreak trends. So that's that's one aspect, but the reason this was started, uh, Secretary, is is uh, because a small team, uh, when when Omicron was detected in Southern Africa, moved quickly to use that kind of modeling data mm -hmm. and analytics to help us inform our decision making. So we're excited about that, and we we it's it's early days. They're staffing up, so there's more to be done. Uh, to your question about labs, I think your question was how it links with the labs. Is that right? Well, or, I'm, or? I'm uh, as you know, I've made the point that uh, we have laboratory facilities across the country right. that are not certified, mm. and um, if they're not integrated with the public health systems in those states right. or regionally, right. um, we're losing a capacity to respond quickly and to make diagnostics. Yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot more work to be done on that front as well. The laboratory response network that has about uh, some 70 plus labs across states and local jurisdictions that helped us, you know, uh, with monkeypox on day one, we had mm -hmm. testing available, uh, about 6,000 tests, as D Director mm -hmm. Walensky has made mention. But we also knew that that wasn't necessarily going to be as accessible to the public. We just mm -hmm. needed to, that was what was available on day one. We are still using that, uh, in fact, for a lot of the uninsured uh, are using it, but we had to, we had to work quickly to ensure that other labs, especially private sector labs, could help bring testing closer to home. And I think your point that you're making about certification is something that the administration is also looking at. Can we get more of that type of capability in place at the beginning? I, I think that's one of our key, key, key. Um, you know, it's 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 an enabler. The faster we move testing in every outbreak not just having a test on day one, but the faster we bring that closer to home. Uh, and, if you, and if you need to do it at the scale that these 
outbreaks and epidemics need. You'll have to work with the private sector. You'll have to work to bring on more labs to be pre-certified. I think that's a critical effort. Particularly in the research universities. I mean, NIH is funding labs yeah. at a very high level, yeah. and they're not certified, and they're closer to home. Right. Yeah. Right. Sure. I, 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 there is an effort, um, I think, there, too, and the senator asked about partnerships that are needed. I, I think we've got to think about these partnerships before these epidemics happen. And, you know, colleagues at the American Academy of Medical Colleges have been really forward-leaning in trying to bring their labs forward. Again, during the monkeypox outbreak, Stanford University, for instance, uh, was able to develop a laboratory-developed test and take turnaround time overnight to eight hours to get a test when someone showed up in the emergency room. So we, we've got a lot more work to do if we want to be faster, if we want to be better, if we want to be more equitable, to leverage both the private sector, commercial labs, as well as academic labs. We also want to make sure those are uh, certified and safe. And so we, uh, you know, as, as had happened during the COVID pandemic, there were some labs that, that uh, were not functioning as well and safely as they should. But I think there's a lot of room between that scenario uh, and where we are today. We've got more labs we can bring online. Uh, thanks, Donna. Uh, next, uh, Tom Doshel. Well, thank you for just an outstanding presentation. I certainly applaud you and the administration for your three priorities. I, 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 I think it's critical that we focus and prioritize, and uh, I think you've landed on three of the most important of all. I might just, uh, there are a couple of thoughts that I'd have that uh, I'd share and, and ask uh, in regard to your comments. The first is, obviously, we're talking about a lot of money here. And this is this is a, a major investment. Nothing, as Joe mentioned, uh, compared to what we've spent in response to the pandemic. But clearly, we have to commit the resources. And any time we commit to significant resources, there's always a question of accountability and how those resources are are spent and to what extent we have the confidence that they're spent correctly. We've gone through in the last few weeks uh, uh, revelations that some of the money that we committed to the response uh, of COVID uh, were misallocated, were, were stolen. Were, and, 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 and I, I guess I would ask what thoughts you have with regard to assuring skeptics that the resources we're requesting, and I could argue they're minimal when we think about the need, uh, that those resources are going to be yeah. accounted for and the oversight is going to be adequate. Well, well, thank you, S Senator, for that question. And um, I, I think the perhaps the, the most appropriate way for me to answer is to highlight the forthcoming national biodefense strategy. Um, um, what I can share, as I shared in my opening remarks, is that we have an actionable, again, 24 to over two dozen, I should say, departments and agencies help build this over, you know, it's been now several, several months, asking that, that um, President Biden's given to Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, to be the federal coordinator for biodefense, uh, and our support to him in that effort is very focused and will continue to be focused on leveraging the NSC process to ensure we are tracking and holding accountable our agencies and departments to achieve and also those 
results that they've put forward, but also uh, ensuring that they have the resources calibrated to, to do that. So I think, I think Senator, that is uh, that's why I said it's the way for the Congress to hold us accountable, and it's a way, which I agree with you, is, is it should be seen as an investment. I mean, it's said in some global spheres that for every dollar invested in pandemic preparedness, we get some $1,100 in economic and health return uh, when you consider the... Uh, and, and if we're going to have a constructive public-private partnership multi-year funding and some assurance to the private sector that this isn't going to be a one-year uh, proposition is so critical. And I don't think Congress or, for that matter, anybody really appreciates how critical that is, giving assurance of continuity, giving assurance that we're in there for the long run, not just one one year, not just, yeah. not just you know, this, this one episode of whatever it may be. But so I, I think the more we can keep that in mind uh, as we request these funds, that we really want to send a message to those willing to put billions of dollars into research, that they're going to have a market once that research is successful. And I don't think we've done a very good job of that. And I'm hopeful we can keep building uh, that awareness and that commitment. Uh, that said, as we look to public health, I am just devastated by the tragedy that has occurred in this country on public health over the last 10 years. And I, I, I don't know that we could ever quantify the impact of the erosion in public health infrastructure that we've seen over this last uh, decade at least. But in keeping with the theme of partnership, what do you think is the most important component of building a more successful public health partnership as you look at our aspirations for improving that goal in particular? Well, th thank you, Senator. I, 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 first of all, I think we've got to be more proximal in the way we approach this. And what I mean by that is outbreaks start in communities, they stop in communities. Those who work with those communities are local health departments. Asking ourselves whether enough of our federal funding is going to local health departments, to state health departments, uh, is, is vital. And I think that there's a lot more we can do there. But I would take it one step further. Um, the most effective local health departments are the ones that are able to partner with community-based organizations, hire community health workers, again, people who are most affected by these outbreaks and epidemics, to be part of the team, to be part of the public health team. And... You know, it's not rocket science. In some places like the state of Alaska, where I worked over 20 years ago, um, they have that that state health department worked through the Alaska Native Health Service to train a group of uh, several hundred Alaska Native community members in the 1950s to address a health threat then, which was tuberculosis, prior to us having a vaccine for tuberculosis at that time. Uh, sorry, I should say, prior to us having uh, 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 a treatment for tuberculosis at that time, one out of five children were infected with TB. And the U.S. Public Health Service was deployed to Alaska under George Comstock to try to respond. They had to cover 20% the landmass of the United States to try to find, you know, for them, that was an epidemic of major proportions. And what they did was they hired the, the health department for the state, hired women largely from the community 
to be chemotherapy aides, they called them at the time. By the time I was working, to, to go door to door to deliver isoniazid treatment. In a decade's time, they had turned the curve on tuberculosis. This has been well documented in the literature. But importantly, Senator, and this is, they didn't allow the tuberculosis deaths and suffering to be the end of the story. That was the beginning of a chapter of another 50 years of investing in a community-based approach to public health. And what that meant, Senator, is that in, by the early 2000s, these now called community health aides, funded by the state, funded by federal dollars, were actually providing not just tuberculosis care, but routine vaccinations. They were providing, uh, they were doing EKGs for patients coming in with chest pain in the tundra that may have a heart attack. Um, of course, all under telemedicine supervision from physicians. Importantly, they were doing all of this at a cost much, much lower than it would have been had they not taken a community-based approach. So I don't want to say that's a panacea, sir, but the idea of bringing care, meeting people where they are, uh, the idea of bringing care closer to the people by involving the people in it also allows us to create jobs for people. And that is something that also is a major issue in a lot of the most marginalized communities in this country. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. Uh, it looks like our technical difficulties with Governor Ridge have been uh, fixed. I hope I'm right. Tom, can you hear me? And if you can, we'd love to either, both hear an opening statement, if you'd like, but then uh, uh, maybe ask some questions of Dr. Punjabi. There you okay. go. Okay. Good morning, dear friend. I'm going to pass on the opening statement. I'm going to tell my colleague, I've got to leave at 1130 for a couple more hours of therapy. So, so so if you call on me and I don't respond, that's where I am. So okay. it occurred to me listening to the previous speakers, just the senator, and I don't know who responded to the senator. Every year, the National Governors Association at least when I was affiliated with it, there would be a annual project or an annual focus. To the extent that we all have this concern about the availability of a competent and engaged public health infrastructure might be something we want to talk to this year's chair and next year's chair about so we might be able to integrate their focus with our focus to expand that very important federal state government relationship because the interaction between the states and the federal government in terms of developing and building out that infrastructure I think will be critical to its long-term success. And if we learn anything during this pandemic is that the communication and the integration of capabilities and services at best might be defined as weak or in need of improvements. Uh, that's a great idea. Doctor? I, I missed a part of that. It's the audio. Maybe, Senator, if you could help yeah. me summarize. Well, I, I think what Governor Ridgecourse, who was a former governor of Pennsylvania, was active in the National Governors Association, still has a lot of context there, was suggesting uh, an increased partnership between the administration and the governor's association mm. on uh, on the kind of questions you've been talking about this morning. 
Th th thank you, Governor Ridge. Uh, it, it is indeed a brilliant idea, and it's something we should take back. I'd, I'd like to do that I, in the context of, of, again, building that preparedness muscle. Uh, it's, it's, it's vital. I, I've seen, uh, Governor, if I could comment, how vital that has been in the context of response, uh, both to COVID, to monkeypox, even to polio in New York. Uh, first of all, they're, they're the ones on the ground leading the efforts. And I think uh, the communication uh, around vaccinations, testing, treatments, uh, uh, ensuring that the data is coming back to us so we can further allocate those important um, life-saving tools is vital. Uh, but so is the feedback, constructive feedback that comes from the governors and their in, uh, staff during the time of response. But your idea of trying to do that during times of preparedness is a, is a brilliant one. We'd love to take, if you have further ideas on that, Governor, we'd, lo we'd love to hear them as well, maybe offline, but but that's, thank you for that suggestion. Good. Yeah. Uh, you got a pretty good uh, a bridge builder in Tom Ridge between you and the governors. Uh, Tom, do you have other questions or comments? You know, I just appreciate the participation and I hope the record notes my idea was characterized as potentially brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. First time in my life, I thank you. <laughs> I, I appreciate your embrace of that idea, Doctor. I mean, we spent a lot of time in the post 9-11 world talking about first responders. And ultimately, the first responders are at the local and state level. And that's why that building out the public infrastructure and solidifying the relationship between the appropriate federal agencies and the federal government and the states is critically important. And I, for one, Senator Lieberman will take it upon myself. We'll find out, maybe through Asher, I will, who chairs the National Governors Association each this year. And by the way, as I recall, we used to meet in the White House once a year after the, after the National Governors had their meeting they always they had historically they had a winter meeting in DC and after that they would convene at the White House and have a conversation with the president. Might be a good time in this this environment which we're living in to raise that in the presence and with the President Biden to see if we can get some buy in to build out that critically important relationship. Th thank you, Governor. Look forward to following up on that. Uh, thanks, Tom. And thank you. Without objection, the record will show that the commission agrees that uh, Governor Ridge's idea is, and he himself are brilliant. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> 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 Glad to be able to do that. Uh, Jim Greenwood and then uh, Susan Brooks. Thank you. Um, Dr. Panjabi, you uh, referenced the. Uh, the monkeypox uh, issue. Uh, I know there was a hearing in the Senate recently. I wasn't able to um, listen to it, but I also know that Senator Burr had some pretty harsh criticism of the administration's response. My question is, uh, if the, the, the biodefense plan, uh, as you've laid it out, and the funding that, that the administration has requested, hypothetically, had all of, have all of that been in place um, when the monkeypox um, epidemic, pandemic, epidemic, I guess it is, um, uh, began, would the response have been different? Would there have been things that we could have done 
in in anticipating it or or in responding to it that um, we don't have the tools to do uh, today. Well, it, it's hard to answer that question in 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 hindsight, of course, um, and and without having that the that funding and that in, in, in preparedness funding in place prior. But what I can say is a lot of the the um, critique and you know look in federal government as a public servant you, you're if this is a democracy and it is uh, that's the goal of uh, uh, of the public is to is it should be putting creative tension on the federal government to do better to do faster to move more quickly I can say everybody's worked as hard as they possibly could and part of what uh, needs to happen if you look at the way that response has has evolved is the need to be able to ensure our systems adapt quickly to ensuring vaccines get to the people that need them most, testing gets to people that need it most, treatments get to people that need it most, um, and communities are involved in that response. Those four pillars are um, have, uh, I think the large resounding point has been we need to transform the system to make all of that work better, faster, and more equitably in the future. And that is exactly what this plan uh, and, and the funding that's requested is attempting to do. Uh, of course, in the end, the test is ultimately whether or not it actually did it. Uh, and I think, uh, but we need the, re so I'm not saying money's the only thing we need. Leadership is needed. Accountability is needed. Uh, but but uh, money's necessary. Uh, it's, it's, it's not simply just going to happen without it. Thank you. That's all I have. Thanks, Jim. Uh, Susan. Oh, I'm sorry. What has been the response of all of the various cabinet positions and agencies yeah. in providing input into that strategy? And then also similarly with local health departments and our state's health departments and public health structure, was input sought from them as to what our national biodefense strategy should be? And if not, why not? Well, well thank you, um, Representative Brooks, for for that question. So the response from the the um, the secretaries has been very much a lean forward attitude. I think there's been uh, that's for the some of the the departments and agencies that have the greatest overlap with the work. You think about HHS, uh, but also ones who um, may have not been as deeply involved in prior strategies. Uh, they've also been very engaged. I think um, that 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 has been. I've, I've been very impressed with. It. Everyone recognizes that this again, the legacy of COVID. This doesn't have to be the end of the story. It could be the start of a new chapter of when we actually started to get serious about investing in these preparedness muscles before we needed to use them in a response. So that's been again, as I said, over a dozen uh, departments and agencies. We started to do some pre-work uh, on. The, the plan to make sure that everyone's ready to track the progress and report on that progress. And in terms of timing, uh, very soon, to your point about uh, local input, indeed, a lot of the 
work that's been done during COVID and uh, and and response to other outbreaks has been the fuel that's informed the development of this effort. Uh, once as this the strategy and the plan becomes public, it's going to be an iterative effort, and it's something we want to do is to seek more formal uh, uh, critique. And and part of it's going to mean releasing the plan publicly first, so that we can be able to share it more widely. But but your point, I think, implied in your question is let's ensure we get the input uh, in a continuous way, I hope. And this is a multi-year effort, so we, we will have a ability to look at this quarterly uh, as well as uh, and then iterate on it. So we will ensure we seek more formally that kind of engagement. So is it fair to say then that what's going to be rolled out is not at this time including the state health uh Department's input, or were well, the states? I yeah. was on State of Indiana's Public Health uh, right. Commission to look yeah. at our health, and I'm just curious whether yeah. or not the administration sought the local and states' input on the plan. Right, or not yet. Right. So, so the 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 ideas have been informed by that ongoing work we've been doing, but have in in terms of formally seeking that input, it would mean releasing that then publicly. To then be able to get that input, so what is what we will do is actually go and seek more formal input once we've been able to release it publicly. So it further informs the development of the plan. But the the work, you know, the priorities that I've mentioned are the kinds of priorities reflected in that plan. And as you can see from um, the example I gave, for instance, with wastewater surveillance, that is something local health officials have said is vital for them to be able to detect polio in New York State, for instance. Um, and, and so that is reflected in the plan. Another example uh, of us taking feedback along the way, uh, even though we haven't been able to release the plan publicly yet, is around the Center for Forecasting Outbreak and Analytics. People have said, local health officials that I've spoken to myself have said we, we need further uh, uh, clarity, faster information uh, when these outbreaks happen at a local level. The last example I'll give, I, I was spoke recently with the Chicago Department of Health um, uh, City Health Commissioner, Dr. Alwadi, and she highlighted the need for more funding that is adaptable so they can use it for community-based approaches in the context of monkeypox. So I will say that our ongoing coordinators, uh, our COVID-19 coordinator, Dr. Ashish Jha, and then also um, our uh, uh, monkeypox coordinator, uh, Bob Fenton have also been a part of of informing this, and they are in constant touch with those. But I, I think the point's well taken, and it's part of our plan as we roll it out to get even more formal input. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> thanks, Susan. Uh, Dr. Punjabi, thanks very much. Uh, you've been great, and, uh, and I hope we see you more often. I'm informed that uh, uh, Dr. Fauci is in the building. The reference to Elvis is not uh, coincidental. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, let's keep in touch. We have a lot. Uh, look, we want to be helpful to you. We, 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 yes. Uh, you're, if, if we had a choice of somebody in this position, it would be you. So we really want to work with you. We have common goals, and uh, we want to help you implement yours and the president's. Well, well, thank you uh, to all of you, commissioners. And, and let me just say, with um, you know, some uh, we, we aspire to just be humble in this because the threat is that existential is that severe and I hope we'll continue to pursue together uh, in partnership here right. uh, and, and let me just also say uh, to the uh, the 
Elvis of public health, how grateful <laughs> we are to my dear friend, colleague, and mentor, Dr. Fauci, for his extraordinary years of service. Amen. I know we all are grateful uh, for him, and, and we look forward to continuing to work with him in his time both in government and outside. Thanks very much. All the best. Godspeed. Thank you. Okay. It's not a seventh inning stretch, it's an inter, interway. <laughs>
Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. It's really a pleasure to see all of you who I've worked with for so many years. The only thing different, Tom, is that I don't run now on the canal with you anymore. I walk. So <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, Tom always used to outshine me when I was running on the canal would just whiz right by me. So, well, first of all, it's great to see all of you. Uh, thank you for this opportunity. Um, I, I want to throw this into a little perspective because I know you're hearing from a lot of different people who are coming from different perspectives. And I want to talk about the investments in research that's part of the broader pandemic preparedness plan. And if you look at what Raj actually may may have mentioned, the Office of Science and Technology Policy has put out an American pandemic preparedness that has multiple pillars to it. There are five pillars, and I think maybe that's what people don't understand when they evaluate or try to improve or critique appropriately the different aspects. Part of it is research. The first part of the pillar is transforming our medical defenses, including the development of vaccines, therapeutics, and diagnostics. But then if you go down the list, there are a lot of other things that are part of the broad package, ensuring situational awareness, strengthening public health systems, building core capabilities, managing the mission. So the part I want to focus on for the relatively few minutes I have is the first part of how do we transform our medical defenses. And that really, I had the opportunity to bump into Scooter Libby when I walked into the building and we had a chance to chat for a few minutes, but it really goes way back to when the investments in biomedical research were felt to be important in preparing us for any threat, be it a bioterror threat uh, or be it a natural occurrence. And they really overlap at the research level, very much so. And that's the thing I think we need to keep in mind. So if you look at the research level, and I'll talk a bit uh, about, and you know, I mentioned 20 years ago when we did it, and I understand I didn't hear it, uh, Tom, that you had mentioned, and it's so true, that one of the things that we have to make sure we don't ever forget the lesson is something that you said, is that when we're facing a challenge and we respond to it, and then it goes into the rearview mirror, our corporate memory is very, very, very short-lived about what we need to do because pandemic preparedness is a perpetual phenomenon. I wrote a paper 14 years ago saying emerging infectious disease is a perpetual challenge and a perpetual challenge has to be met by a perpetual preparedness, not intermittent type of preparedness. So I totally agree with you on that. But taking what the NIH does, if you look at our approach to that, it's our general grantees and contractors who do the fundamental basic research that feeds into the preparedness. One of the most important examples of that is the 12, 15, 20 years of research that went into the development of vaccine platforms, i.e. mRNA, NIH grantees, the development of the immunogen that was used in virtually all the vaccines for COVID-19, the Vaccine Research Center at the NIH and many of our grantees. That was going on for 15 to 20 years before the virus COVID was recognized in January and we did something in a very unprecedented way. We went from January the 10th when we knew what the virus was to December when we had already had a vaccine that was proven to be highly effective in saving millions of lives. 
That's a very important um, a demonstration of the importance of fundamental basic research. And again, I don't want to go into all the details, but part of that, as you know, wasn't us alone. It was the partnership that we made with industry. So if there's any one lesson when you talk about the research enterprise, it's you've got to partner with industry. And the partnerships with the industrial enterprise, which led to the production with Operation Warp Speed and how quickly that was done, as well as international collaborators. That is what we do. Now, the part of the research approach is the basic that I mentioned, the research capacity, and the public health clinical trial capacity. And this is, I think, something we should be proud of, and countermeasure development. So research crosses over. When we were, um, at the time that Secretary Shalala was secretary, we put together an international network of clinical trials for vaccine, for prevention, and for treatment of HIV. And those are the same clinical trial units that we use to test the COVID vaccine. So an investment we made in another infection, which was a very important pandemic, was leveraged 15, 20 years after I built it to do a different disease. So let's talk about countermeasure development. The one thing that I think is most important for what we're talking about today is the vaccine development approach for emerging infections. There's two major approaches that one needs to um, uh, appreciate. One is called priority pathogen. You pick out a pathogen that's smoldering out there, infecting a few people, not developing the capability of efficiently going from person to person. I mean, Nipper is an example of that, um, where you then do everything you need to do to be ready with a diagnostic, a therapeutic, and a vaccine. But the trouble is, historically, we always get fooled by the one that really hits us. And that's why we have what's called a prototype pathogen approach. So what is a prototype pathogen approach? It means there are about 20 families of viruses, a renovirus, alpha virus, flavivirus, uh, 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 all kinds of different, coronavirus, which I'll get to in a second. Of those, about seven of those families are of risk that we know there's little percolations of escape from animals into humans, Nipper being one, Lasser another, Marburg another. So what one can do with an investment is to take those and take a look at the family and develop commonalities among them. What's the best animal model? What's the best diagnostic? What's the best antigen target? What's the best vaccine platform? And make an investment in that over years. Now investment in that, for each one of those, you're talking about billions of dollars per family. You're not talking about a couple of million of dollars. And you have to make that investment because look at what we did with coronavirus. We've known about coronaviruses for decades, the common cold. Lucky for us, it's the bad news and the good news. The bad news is we got hit with a terrible historic pandemic. The somewhat good news is that we were studying this for decades, SARS-CoV-1, 2002, MERS, 2012. And then when it hit us, we already had the capability of knowing what the right antigen design was to get the vaccine. That is critically important. We want to do that 
with the various different families, orthomyxovirus, bunyavirus, filoviruses, to do the same thing. That's vaccines. Therapeutics, the same thing. Again, I'm looking at Donna because we, we discussed this so frequently during the AIDS time. We had a targeted antiviral approach where you look at the replication cycle of HIV and you pick out multiple different vulnerable targets and you either screen drugs that you already have or you develop de novo new drugs. The overwhelming success story of that is the HIV situation where we have like dozens and dozens of drugs that have transformed the life. We're doing that right now with SARS-CoV-2, the same paradigm of looking at vulnerable targets and that's our antiviral program for pandemics where you develop or you discover. And we're doing that with investments that we have right now. But again, I get back to what I believe that Tom said, the same thing with diagnostics. You can have platforms of diagnostics that you could plug in to each of these. It requires a decades long investment for pandemic preparedness. So let me just summarize, I wanna stay within my time. The model that I'm talking about is threefold. Key research gaps when you're looking at potential viruses, always pushing the envelope at the level of research, accelerating the development of products by collaboration with our industrial partners and doing it at an international level, and then coordinate closely with other US government and non-government partners. Because remember, nothing that I mentioned had to do with the classic CDC type public health, where you do surveillance and you find out what variants out there and you immediately, we're gonna have to interact and collaborate not only with other government elements, but also with the non-government private sector. So I'll stop there and I'll be happy to answer any questions. Uh, that was great. Um, I believe Governor Ridge may have to leave soon. Tom, if you can hear me, uh, do you want to uh, uh, ask the first round of questions of Dr. Fauci? Well, thank you very much, Senator. First of all, uh, Senator, I want to echo your uh, expression of gratitude for the decades of public service, Dr. Fauci. And uh, I I think frankly, I think absent his leadership during the past several months, the situation in America would be far worse than it is today. I'm kind of curious, Doctor, when you talk about the continuous uh, development of the vaccines, diagnostics, and therapeutics. particularly international collaboration is critical to this. The CDC have a, a plans in the future to continue their work internationally. Yeah, well. On such, such challenges, or is, it all, is, all, is that all domestic research? No, actually, th thank you for that question, um, uh, Governor, and I'm I'm sorry I didn't recognize you. You were on this side of the aisle. You were on the screen. I was talking about the things that we did early on in response to the original anthrax attacks. And as you know, you and I, I had the privilege of working closely with you on so many of the things that we developed. And the answer to your question 
is that the CDC absolutely has a role, not only domestically, but that internationally. By definition, a pandemic by pan all, all the different countries, you can't be confined to your own country. And that's the reason why we've got to continue to give a lot of support to the CDC to be able to maintain their international connections the way they have. They have connections throughout the world, and that has been very beneficial for us. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't say to the panel, my recollection of the Senator Spector's work on the Senate, Senator Lieberman, you may know this. I think he was a, 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 a strong, strong, sustained advocate for all the work he did at CDC. Am I, my recollection correct? I do want to recognize his contribution. Yes. To, yes. Uh, <laughs> Indeed. In, in he, was, he was passionate and uh, he was practically effective too i was in, about everything i was in the it was i was in the room a few times with him when we have more time i'll tell you the story where uh he had the most uh bare knuckles and quid pro quo negotiating but not not for anything for himself it was money for the national cancer institute and right. in this case as, as he advocated for cdc uh any more questions tom this is probably somewhat naive. When you try to interact with the uh, the uh, private sector in the development of any of these response to any of CDC's uh, priorities, I'm sorry, I didn't get. I didn't get how that. critical is that issue? Of, how critical is that issue of funding to them? Oh, <laughs> is it in, yeah. I mean, I'm glad I mean, you brought. I'm glad you brought that up, Governor. The, the CDC, in order to do the job that we expect them to do, that they can do, is that the modernization that you've heard about, the suggestion, it is, it is extraordinary that we can't get data in real time because of the system that they are working with, which is so antiquated. They need to get the system of real-time data and they know that. I'm not tattling on them. They're the ones that know that better than I do, that we were in a situation, and it's the truth, when you're trying to deal with the patterns of what's going on with the different variants in real time, unless we fix what they're asking us to help them fix, and we should help them fix it, that they can get data in real time. We were in the, I wouldn't say embarrassing situation, but somewhat uncomfortable situation of getting on a Zoom with our colleagues in the UK and in Israel to get real-time data because their system of interconnectivity with the healthcare system gives them data in real time so that they know not only what the variant is, what the response is, what the role of vaccination is, who's getting infected, whether or not you need a boost, because they have the healthcare information literally in real time and ours is delayed through no fault of their own of the cdc at all they just don't have the resources to do that and that's the reason why we've really got to make sure that they're properly funded do we need the doctor to improve uh, your ability to access that data at the local level through our through our public health infrastructure in the states Absolutely. You're asking, uh, Governor, all the really important questions. 
the, the way the system is set up now, the CDC can only help out the states if the states ask them for it, as opposed to saying, this is a domestic and international public health emergency. We need these data now, not, well, call me in and I'll help you. That It doesn't make any sense, that situation. It's it's almost intuitively wrong to not allow to have the CDC to have total access to the data at the state level. Senator Lieberman, uh, again, I thank you for the opportunity to ask Dr. Fauci these questions. And again, on a very personal note, I want to thank you for decades of service to our country, Dr. Fauci. God bless you and your family. Thank you very and much, sir. All- Thanks, Tom. Thank you, sir. Uh, be well. Thank you, talk, talk to you soon. Godspeed. Um, Dr. Fauci, I, I was really struck by some of the um, sort of, you might say dreams, but they're really based on your scientific knowledge of what we're uh, capable of doing uh, in the, the disease prevention or response. And I must say that along the way in our work, which now goes back to 2014, um, we kind of stumbled into some thoughts, which in reading about your background, I found out you'd had years ago, um, which, for instance, were for a universal flu vaccine. Correct. Or um, uh, you proposed a long time ago, long before COVID-19, that that we develop a basic, as you you talked about, a basic platform vaccine, which would address an entire class of virus, not just a, a particular strain. So, um, I want to frame my question this way. In our uh, this commission's Apollo report, um, we we expressed our hope that the country would have the goal of preventing pandemics in the future. Right. Um, so, based on all your knowledge and experience and your vision, is that possible? Yeah, it's important if you distinguish between the emergence of a new infection and that emergence turning into a pandemic. It is gonna be very difficult, if not impossible, so long as you have that encroachment on the animal-human interface, where you have viruses that can jump species. And if you look at the new infections that have caused us harm, some locally, some in a trivial way, and some in a totally transforming way, HIV being one of the transforming ones. Again, encroachment upon the animal-human interface from a chimp, influenza, birds, wild birds, ducks, pigs, Ebola from the environment. All of those things, 75% of all of these new infections are zoonotic. They come from an animal species. Unless we get the entire world to be really, really much more careful and not intermingle animals that are exotic animals together with humans, if we can't do that, we're not going to be able to prevent the emergence of a new infection. The critical issue that we're all about is to prevent the emergence from becoming a pandemic. And you do that by public health preparedness, by surveillance, by awareness, by nimbleness in getting a diagnostic out there really quickly so something doesn't go under the radar screen and spread without your knowing it. The other thing is to develop therapeutics according to what I just mentioned about the, anti, the, the antiviral for the for pandemic program, as well as being able to have a vaccine. And that was one of the 
one of the really important advances of the mRNA technology. That's not the end game. We can probably do even better than that. But it's a phenomenal start where you can actually turn around what you're doing in a matter of a couple of months. And a, a classic example of that now is what we've been able to do in collaboration with industry in taking the original vaccine and Goodbye. as the virus started to emerge with new variants, say right now, the BA45 is the dominant variant. In a couple of months, you could just switch that and get the same vaccine only expressing a bivalent BA45 wild type vaccine. I mean, you'd never be able to do that with the classical time-honored vaccine technology. So we've got other things cooking that we need to do with the investments that I'm talking about, Senator. Things like new platforms, nanoparticles, vector expressed uh, immunogens, um, the, the use of adjuvants, the use of stabilization of different immunogens in different forms that allow it to be more immunogenic. Those are the things that are part of the research pro uh, 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 enterprise that I'm talking about. And those are the things that, getting back to what I think you said, Tom, that when we get COVID in the rearview mirror, if we forget about this, then, you know, my grandchild sometime is going to be in front of a similar committee saying, why didn't we learn the lessons of the past? That's true. Thank you. Uh, great answer. And uh, to me, very exciting um, about what we're capable of doing if we put our, our minds and our resources to it. Donna Shalala. Thank you very much. And thank you for your service. And I had a wonderful opportunity for eight years to work with um, with Tony. I I'm glad you emphasized uh, basic research because that's the underpinning of all of this. And one of the things I worry about, and probably out of my experience from a lot of institutions, is the movement towards set-asides. You know, everybody wants to identify a certain disease and set aside a certain kind of money for that, and yet it's the basic science that allows us to the nimbleness to deal with these uh, diseases. Um, has your organization, in terms of investigator-driven applications, changed over the years um, as you as you've built these platforms and spent years making investments in basic science? And are you able to protect that basic science uh, with the onslaught of um, a lot of lobbyists that want set-asides. Yeah, and, and the answer to that uh, uh, is, is, is that we haven't. And, and it pains me to say that, in that the number of, of very qualified grants, particularly what we're trying to do to get the younger generation involved in science and fundamental basic science, is that when I say that, I don't want there to be an interpretation that I am not extremely grateful for the generosity of the Congress and various administrations in a bipartisan way of supporting the NIH. We have over $42 billion. You know, that was a fraction of that when I came to the NIH 54 years ago. But what you're saying, Donna, is absolutely correct, is that not only is the, the opportunities grow as science becomes 
more exciting and 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 new opportunities open at the same time as you have limited resources with all due respect to that I'm very grateful for what we've had when you do a lot of different earmarks that takes away from the core of the undifferentiated research that you need i mean a typical example is that if you look at the basic research that went into trying to get the mrna molecule in a form that doesn't get destroyed to be used as a vaccine it is it was just a lot of fundamental research at the time that drew weissman and katie carrico were doing it they didn't have any idea that that they were going to be making an incredible vaccine for an unknown virus at all when the people at the vaccine research center were playing around with the confirmation of the hiv envelope molecule to make it more immunogenic they had no idea that the structural biology which is fundamental basic research that that would be used for structure-based vaccine design for COVID. So you're absolutely correct that we've got to keep that component of the NIH very vibrant. If you start eroding that, then feeding into the next 20 years, the way 15 and 20 years ago fed into what we're doing with COVID now, we're not going to have that. That pipeline of fundamental creative ideas is going to thin out, and then we're going to be in, in a problem. Thank you very much. And um, Mr. Chairman, that's a very important point uh, to protect the, the basics. We don't know where it's going to lead and when it's going to be useful is, is essentially what Dr. Fauci is saying. I have a quick question about communications. During the AIDS crisis, we had a constituency that followed the science. So they knew as the science was, as you were getting more research done, what the findings were. During COVID, um, it seemed to me that that the public didn't understand that um, advice was going to change as you learned more. That they we didn't have that underlying uh, platform yeah. to educate the public that we were. It wasn't that we were going to change our minds. We were going to make decisions based on science, and it was going to change. And we didn't get that into people's heads, so they thought we were going back and forth, um, changing our minds. What have you learned about uh, all of that? And I, I, you know, most people focus on the anti-vax people and the anti-science people, but I'm worried about the larger public yeah. understanding um, yeah. that as we get more information, we're going to give you uh, different directions. Yeah, that to me is one of the critical lesions of what we have faced is the lack of understanding, and I say that with some degree of of concern because it it will almost certainly get taken out of context. And somebody's going to say I'm saying the public is stupid, which they're not. They're really smart. They're smart if you just give them the right information. What we do need, and and the divisiveness in this country, we did not have back in the day of HIV. We had, you know, there was always a little political aspect to things, but that's, you know, welcome to the world that we, yeah, yeah, exactly. But the fact is that the constituencies were following the science and they were pushing back and it was a dialogue that was an in good faith dialogue about getting things right in a moving target. 
What we have right now is a lack of appreciation, which is difficult under the best circumstances. But when you have elements of society trying to jump on every little thing to create more divisiveness, it becomes very, very difficult. For example, the science literacy that is needed to know that when you have a moving target and you get asked for a recommendation, a policy, or an interpretation of what's going on, what you have is the data that's in front of you. Now, if this were mathematics or physics, it wouldn't change. It's a mathematical formula. But it's biology and the evolution of our knowledge from week to week in January of 2020 to February to March to an appreciation of aspects of the virus that you couldn't appreciate it unless you experienced and or unless there was greater transparency that were coming from certain parts of the world, that you had to say something based on what you knew in January. If something changes, in order to be true to the science, you'd have to change and say, you know, we thought, we didn't know definitively that it was aerosol transmitted at a certain time. We didn't know that 50 to 60% of the transmissions were from an asymptomatic person. So our interpretation of what was going on changes because the information changes. That can't be interpreted as flip-flopping. That is, in its purest form, following the science. But when you have certain elements that want to make this, you know, well, I don't want to go into it, but you know what I'm talking about, then it becomes completely garbled that nothing is right. I mean, don't believe the scientists. They don't know what they're talking about because what we're trying to do is say, when you're dealing with an evolving situation, the best way to do the science is to use the new information to guide you as things change. Because if you stay with what you knew in the first month, when you know a lot more in month three, four, five, six, seven, then you're not following the science. Thanks, Donna. Tom. Well, Tony, I can't thank you enough for the tutorial you <laughs> continue to give us uh, here and in so many other places. I love your energy and your passion, and uh, I, I'm reminded of that old maxim that in every 70-year-old, there's a 30-year-old wondering what happened. In your case, <laughs> in your case, there's nothing. Uh, nothing's happened. Uh, you have the same passion of a 30-year-old, and I, uh, I just love your eloquence and your ubiquity. You're everywhere, and I just, uh, what a treasure. I, 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 if I could take just a couple of moments, because I think it's so critical to come back to this question of the cycles that in your 54 years you've experienced so often of respond and forget, respond and forget. I think the challenges today are even more complicated perhaps than when you started in the NIH, because I think we're more polarized and we're more uh, suspect to disinformation and algorithms around that disinformation and the degree to which seeking the truth and reaching consensus around the truth is so much more difficult. And then I think we've become so easily distracted with so many other things that come at the country, understandably, uh, whether it's a war in Ukraine or our, our circumstances uh, in this country with inflation or immigration. So we can be preoccupied very quickly. So if there is, if there are one or two things based on all the experience in five decades that you've had with regard to this 
terrible cycle that we continue to experience around this notion of keeping this a priority and creating the consensus around the urgency of keeping it so, what would that be? You know, Tom, I don't know if, if, if I have, I'm sure you and your colleagues have thought about that. And if it was easy answer, we'd have it. <laughs> and we don't, I don't know, maybe I keep thinking of a standing group, be that a standing commission that doesn't go out of, um, you know, out of favor or out of existence when you have to focus on on other things that are really, really quite important and have people continuing to think about it and continuing to keep it, you know, not on the front page all the time because you don't want to do that. I mean, I think that's just going to get the, the people to get weary of it and not paying attention to it. But to, but to don't, don't turn the engine off, you know, keep the motor running so that when you need to get in the car and put your foot on the pedal, it'll go and you don't have to go get a tune-up every time that you need to do something. I mean, that's, I guess, the best metaphor I can think of. Have something that continually reevaluates. I mean, that's the point. You can go, you can have an ongoing something, a commission or what have you, where every couple of years you look and say, okay, is the stockpile still vibrant? Um, are we still funding the basic research that Donna is talking about? How's our interactions with industry? How are we doing with our surveillance? And to just intermittently evaluate it, not in an, in an inquisition way, but in a way to keep, keep it warm. Because if you go from red hot the way we are now to into the deep freeze, by the time you get restarted again, uh, you're behind the eight ball. So that's really one of the things I can think of, Tom, as a possibility. Well, that's very helpful. I, I think the other thing is, is uh, and, and here you, you may be the preeminent expert in, in our country, and that's finding a, a way with which to ensure continuity from one administration to another. We, we've faced a lot of circumstances with the, the, the number of plans that have been presented in, in ways, and the administration is going to be presenting yet another plan. I think the key is going to be the implementation around that plan and the assurance that there's some continuity in implementation as we go from one administration to the next as we face these pandemic possibilities going forward. Is there a key to that implementation continuity that you might suggest? Yeah, I mean, I guess if you look at the, the structures that don't change, the departments, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, the Department of Health and Human Services, you get new administrations, you get new secretaries, you get changing of party and power. But if you can instill in the actual framework of the government someone, uh, an element that's responsible for that and doesn't change from administration to administration, I think that might be a good idea. I don't know what that's going to look like, Tom, but that might be something where you essentially instill it into a permanent part of the government as opposed to something that comes and goes depending upon what the administration or what the Congress is run by. Well, good to see you. Thank you. My pleasure. That's a great idea about a commission, and maybe we can take it up. And <laughs> <laughs> Until that happens, we'll try in our way to fulfill that role. But it really ought to be an official commission. Yeah. Great idea. 
Uh, next is Jim Greenwood, Congressman Greenwood. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Fauci. I, as um, I want to add my uh, comments to those who have praised your service, which is extraordinary. And as I've watched you, particularly during the, the pandemic, the, the phrase, um, no good deed goes unpunished, uh, went through my mind a lot. And uh, it seemed like the uh, punishment was uh, proportional to your good deed. So uh, the other phrase that comes up is, uh, nil carborundum illegitimi. Right. Uh, and there are a lot of illegitimi out there. So, and so. I've been carborundum a lot. <laughs> yes, yeah. So um, you mentioned warp speed, and, and um, the small contribution that I was able to make was one day uh, Alex Azar called me and said, if we were going to do a Manhattan project to build a vaccine, who should run it? And so I did some consulting, and I called Monsef Slawi, and I said, would you be interested in doing this? And um, he he, uh, he said yes, and then he hung up the phone and cursed to his wife, <laughs> knowing that life was going to get rough. Um, but you know that was built. It was like building an airplane while flying it. You know, building it in the, in the midst of the of the pandemic. And so the question is, if if we had to do it all over again, um, what lessons were learned in putting warp speed together um, so that we're prepared uh, for the next one? And and to what extent is the infrastructure warp speed? Uh, going to be with us so that you don't have a, a, a building process next time? Yeah, I, th that's a great question, uh, uh, Jim. And, and I think the the way to do that is to make a decision. And I think a good decision uh, is to, since it's a health issue and you called up Alex or Alex called you um, and asked you about that, I think that that's something that could be well suited to be in the Department of Health and Human Services with connections to Homeland Security and to other of the elements of government to be able to keep a part of, of that alive. Again, getting to what I was saying, that the infrastructure, you know, it has a different name, it gets named differently, but fundamentally right now to get what is the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response with Barter under there, that was a very important element in dealing with the companies because that connection between, for example, the research we do, handing it over to Barter, Barter then deals with the with the companies. I think, you know, talking about things that are permanent that don't go away when you have a change of administration, I think to keep that really very strong, that you can again keep the motor on and just press the button when we do it. I I I, I think they the commitment that the country made with Operation Warp Speed to, to marry the science and what we were able to do with the vaccine candidates with something that was unprecedented to invest hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars to get something ready to go, you know, is I think history is going to look back at that and say, wow, man, that was really something. Thanks, uh, Jim Donna, Donna, Susan. <laughs> thank you. And I echo everyone's gratitude and thank you so much for your service to the country, you know, throughout uh, many of everyone's here's lifetimes. And so thank you so very much. Um, Want to just share um, that this commission, recommendations that this commission made really do inform Congress. And, uh, and inform the White House. And in fact, this commission recommended the vice president be in charge of, of biodefense uh, and, and that strategy. But going forward, and because you were in the middle of 
now two administrations' response to, to you know, how uh, they responded to COVID um, and the pandemic. How would you change the structure as to how the White House leads in a future pandemic and what the organizational structure within government looks like? Um, that you were in the middle of all of that. And we'd like to make recommendations for you know future White Houses and future administrations as to what the structure should look like. And you mentioned Asper and Bard and the importance of, of their role, but how would you change how things were structured and how the response uh, unfolded? And then finally, uh, what's still keeping you up at night now? As you are, you know, soon leaving federal government. Uh, let me answer the let me answer the second question uh, first. Well, my concern is uh, what I I mentioned earlier in in my presentation is that when you're looking at this unprecedented situation that we're in right now, you're going to have the emergence of new variants. It's inevitable unless you get the entire world to suppress the level of replication globally so that the chances of a variant emerging, because the variant that we're worried about now that I'm keeping my eye on is BA 2.75.2. And that is a, you know, it's got a lot of numbers to it, but it is a variant that has emerged in India. And if you look at the curve, it's starting to come up. That may or may not turn out to be a problem. I don't know but you have to keep your eye on that. And the thing that keeps me up at night is something that I'm not sure I can do anything about, is the fact that we have 68% of our population is vaccinated in a rich country that has all the vaccines that they want, and only one half of them have given at least one boost. So we have a vulnerability in our population that will continue to have us in a mode of potential disruption of our social order. And I think that we, we have to do better as a nation to pull together as a nation. The, the other thing that keeps me up at night is I think what I mentioned, what Tom alluded to is that, you know, I'm not gonna be here forever and none of us are gonna be here forever, but uh, people are gonna forget what we've been through. We, we've lost over 1 million Americans in a two and a half year period. You know, and, and we've, we, we've got to not ever forget that when people talk about other things that we're worrying about. The, if, the issue with the structure, I have to be perfectly frank with you, there was nothing wrong with the structure. I believe that when you have something that's a core part of a department that has a lot of civil servant experienced people who are not totally political, that's the thing that even when political people come in with varying ideologies, depending upon what the administration is, there are some core things that if you establish them and they develop a degree of respect throughout the government and throughout the world, that's what you want. When you say, how would the structure be different? Well, we had a very, I mean, I, I, I don't want to get into that because if I even mention it right now, I will, you know, get 20 other death threats, but that's, that's the name of the game. <laughs> we, we had a very unusual situation with the, with the last administration. Um, and it, it, it interfered in many ways, in my mind, with a proper evaluation of what was going on. So the structure was fine. 
But what happened wasn't fine. So I, I you know, I can't change that. Thanks, Susan. Uh, Dr. Parch, you've been great, very helpful to us. Um, you said earlier that you're walking now and not running anymore, but in every other way, you certainly seem to me to be at the top of your game, so I'm glad you're not retiring. Um, the country really needs you. I will say that uh, this commission may take the liberty every now and then in your next chapter to just give you a call and say, are we doing the right thing? Is there something right. else we should be doing? Um, in the meantime, I was thinking uh, that uh, you give me an opportunity to prove, <clears throat> and finally, uh, uh, to my Italian-American paisans in Connecticut that I listened to them when they taught me the hope and prayer that I will give to you, Gentanti, Gentani. 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 <laughs> May you live to be 100 years. And when you get there, we'll go on to the next toast. I appreciate that, Thank you. That, Thank, you. you. Thank you. Thank you. On September 12, 1962, President John F. Kennedy stood before the nation and spoke those immortal words. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. It could have been written off as an impossible challenge doomed to fail. Instead, it galvanized the country and brought us together for the benefit of all of humankind. Today, we're faced with our own seemingly impossible challenge stopping pandemics before they can ever take hold again. And just like the race to the moon, it will take our best and brightest to reach our final destination. But more importantly, it will take all of us coming together once again for the common good. Each of us are experiencing firsthand the devastating effects of pandemics, and it's becoming painfully obvious that we must put an end to them once and for all. But within all the turmoil and grief, there is hope. We developed a vaccine in less than a year pushing technology and innovation beyond what was thought possible. And new treatments and medications have been created. Yet while we stemmed the tide and averted an even greater catastrophe, we might not be so lucky next time. Whether natural, accidental, or deliberate, infectious disease threats are increasing in frequency and severity. It's that very reason why we must act now. Fortunately, there are those who have already answered the call and joined forces to form the Apollo Program for Biodefense. Our nation has a history of accomplishing amazing things when we put our minds to it. From a system of highways that connected the country to a global positioning system that helps us find our way. We have always been able to achieve what's never been done before, particularly when we take on technological challenges. But this challenge will take sustained bipartisan support and U.S. leadership to develop new technologies needed to prevent biological events. Both public and private sectors must work together with private sector providing research, insights, manufacturing, and efficiency, while the government provides structure, oversight, and incentives for innovation. And since this problem is a threat to all, we will work with other countries in a U.S.-led initiative, strengthening our international relationships while making everyone safe from pandemics. The Apollo Program for Biodefense will not focus on a singular track, but rather multiple groundbreaking solutions. We'll create a world where new pathogens are detected and continually traced from the source, where we can distribute rapid point-of-person tests to every household in the country within days of detection, where effective treatments are already in hand and vaccine development and rollout occur in weeks rather than years. We'll advance other areas of science across the whole spectrum of STEM as well, 
inspiring the next generation of scientists, bioengineers, entrepreneurs, and public servants. We're closer to ending pandemics today than you might think, but we're at a turning point. It's time to harness America's ingenuity, optimism, and grit to achieve resilience against biological threats. Anything less could have dire consequences. Living through this pandemic has created momentum to produce technologies that we had lacked the will and resources to pursue before. We have to build on that progress and push for greater advances that will protect us from the next infectious disease threat. We envision a time when people will look back and wonder how we ever let infectious diseases wreak havoc on our society. How we ever tolerated seasonal flu, let alone viruses like COVID-19. This noble and extraordinary mission can be fully realized by the end of this decade, but only with leadership, resources, and interests that go beyond technical constraints and the usual cycle of panic and neglect. The time is now. Please join our cause today so that all of us can be protected and the world can be safer for all the tomorrows to come. Uh, outbreaks um, may be inevitable Pandemics are not, and, and I want to repeat that because that is a, a view that the uh, commission shares and holds very deeply, that we know, um, we've learned enough to know that viral outbreaks cannot be stopped, but we can stop uh, pandemics. Um, going back to our, our first report on the Apollo program earlier this year, uh, we, we had four recommendations and 15 technology priorities. Um, among the four recommendations were that the administration should develop and implement a national biodefense science and technology strategy, um, which I'm pleased to say the Biden administration really has taken some big steps forward in doing. And Senator Lieberman and Governor Ridge testified before this very committee in 2015 when our commission released its first report, A National Blueprint on Biodefense. They warned that the biological threat to the nation was rising, and they informed this committee uh, that the nation was insufficiently prepared to handle a large-scale biological event. Sadly, COVID-19 emerged and proved our point. A little over six years after that hearing, I come before you today to warn you that, again, while COVID-19 dominates our national and global attention, the biological threat continues to increase and while some strides have been made, we are still not sufficiently prepared. Last year, the State Department released a report in which it stated clearly and unequivocally that Russia and North Korea now possess active biological weapons programs with China and Iran not far behind. We must assume that our enemies, both nation states and terrorists, are paying attention to the vulnerabilities revealed during COVID-19 and that we must prepare for an attack on the U.S. homeland with biological weapons. We cannot afford to optimize for COVID-19 or other naturally occurring diseases with pandemic potential to the exclusion of all else. U.S. biopreparedness, as the chairman said, is fractionated, multifaceted, and distributed across all levels of government and much of the private sector. All 15 cabinet departments, eight independent agencies, and one independent institution are responsible for biodefense. We have to solve the federalism issues. It's not only who does what in the federal government, but who does what in government in general. Uh, and we've struggled with that. What do we expect the states to do? What do we expect the local governments to do? And how do we properly, without being so uptight, integrate the private sector and make investments um, 
in that sector to get the results that we want. So it's a complicated role. Government is not necessarily uh, designed uh, to do this kind of thing, but the only way we're going to save lives around the world in the future is by anticipating the future and putting together an integrated strategy, and that's what the Apollo program uh, represents. Thank you. Will mounting a defense against infectious diseases be as hard as getting to the moon? <laughs> um, it is as ambitious of a program as that, but it is very doable. So that's from vaccines, diagnostics, therapeutics, biosurveillance-related um, sequencing and PPE, laying out what are the the tools that we can have in our arsenal to protect against these. Well, earlier this year, we released the Athena Agenda, which was specific recommendations on how to actually achieve those uh, 15 technology priorities that were laid out in the Apollo report. We need to have that in place, and that requires research funding, it requires the coordination of government agencies, um, and it ha ha requires having a plan to execute on, right? mRNA platforms drastically reduced <clears throat> excuse me, vaccine development timelines from decades to months and allowed us to get immunizations into arms in record time. I don't usually call out particular companies, but I'm so impressed with Moderna um, that it could develop in its first batch of vaccines, its first batch of vaccines for clinical trials just 25 days after obtaining the sequence of the virus and dosed the first trial participant just 38 days later. That was remarkably successful, but the nation needs broader, preemptive, and sustained public-private efforts to better protect against future biological threats. To succeed, we need to think big. In the end, um, public or private sector, it doesn't matter. It, the money for this is coming from people. It is coming in this country. It's coming from from our citizenry, right? The people who pay taxes. Yep. Uh, there has to be a level of accountability sure. back to the citizenry, and um, it's accountability of the entire government and the private sector. Everybody together working on something like this. I think you know the the example of the Apollo program is a really good one. The public knew all about that. It knew what was happening, it knew what was going on. Did it know the classified stuff? No, it didn't, it didn't know. Nobody needed to know that. But they captured, you know, the hearts and minds of everybody, down to little kids. You know, we're going to the moon, we're going to the moon, we're doing this, we're going to the moon. Um, and I think that that's, that would be a critical component as well. If we're going to do it, there has to be that accountability and the public has to be engaged and understand what's, what's happening all the people that have experienced so much loss due to these other diseases, hepatitis and typhoid and cholera and um, smallpox back in the day, monkeypox now. Look, the emotional reaction throughout this country when we read in the papers that polio virus has yeah. been discovered back in New York, 
people are flipping out all, all over the place. Polio here, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that has to be harnessed <laughs> somehow <laughs> and connected with this program. Because if it is, I think it would move forward. Nelson Mandela used to say quite frequently that many things are impossible until they're done. And I think our challenge is to make the impossible possible. And that's going to take the resources that we've discussed today already. It's going to take the organizational effort that Donna just described. It's going to take a real effort on the part of leadership across the board at all levels to make it more of a priority than it is today. That's my concern, I think, almost more than anything. We're going to hear from some of the most respected experts in the country on this issue today. They are the people to whom we ought to turn. But we also need the policymakers. We need the leaders in the administration to say, no, we can't just say we're supportive. We're going to have to make this a higher priority. We're going to have to make this an issue that we all care passionately about because we recognize that to take this from impossible to possible is going to require... We are very, very pleased to have Congressman uh, Trone uh, with us today. He is a member of the Appropriations Committee, the Veterans Committee, and the Joint Economic Committee. He's a congressman from Maryland, highly respected, and uh, we deeply appreciate your public service, David, in so many ways. Our subject matter, as you know, this uh, today in this session is biological intelligence, innovation, and public-private partnership, and you are extremely familiar with that, and we are very, very appreciative of your willingness to take time out of your extraordinarily busy schedule to be with us. So, and we know you have a, a very short window here, so we will invite your comments and have a few questions and let you go. Okay, that sounds great. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. It's great to see so many uh, familiar faces. We have two fantastic members of the, uh, the House uh, that we both dearly miss for their bipartisanship and uh, tremendous work ethic. So it's great to see both of you again. And I think you preceded me. So, but, yeah, but, uh, these folks here, Donna and Susan, were fantastic. So it's great. Um, yeah, we have a break right now. They're doing the police reform bill. So they're trying to rally up the votes. Imagine how that's going. <laughs> Not that well. <laughs> There's a, there's a few on the outs, far left that are not quite there yet, but uh, we'll see. So good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'd like to thank the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense for having us here today. Um, happy to discuss the importance of preparing our nation uh, for biological threats. Uh, these investments are too important uh, to be put on the back burner. We just saw that uh, recently with COVID uh, when the investments that we had made a decade or more earlier uh, in bio uh, with NIH uh, down in Texas that actually led to the start of the RMA vaccine and you know brought that brought help bring that home and jumpstart it. So that uh, really long-term thinking is the key. Uh, that's something that I talk about on a regular basis. 
uh, as a business person, uh, 37 years, and a political person, three of three to four years, uh, I always think about what's the right thing to do long term. And in business, it's great people, best people, best technology, best real estate, you name it. Invest, over-invest, and think, you know, 20, 30 years out. And I, I look at the, this situation, and as all of you know in Congress, it's all about short-term thinking. Every two years, uh, you were fortunate to have that six-year cycle. Boy, you, you know how lucky you were. But um, every two years, we're back at it again, and it's, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever, uh, the short-term thinking we have in Congress. So everything I try and talk about is how we think long-term. And by getting on the Appropriations Committee in my second term, uh, it's an opportunity to try and influence uh, thinking and uh, bring it around to where I think it should be. And, you know, that includes uh, expanding areas of money into places like NIH, uh, which so desperately gets us an 8-to-1 ROI, pretty amazing. And, of course, the National Cancer Institute is a, a key piece of that. Uh, so those investments are smart. Um, specifically in our district, we have a pretty unique district in that in Frederick, Maryland, uh, in the heart of my district, uh, we have uh, USAMRID uh, and the Integrated Research Facility uh, they've been crucial contributors to our national security and pandemic response. So when it was Zika, um, it was Ebola, you know, it was anthrax, all of that went up to Fort Detrick in Frederick, Maryland, uh, to USAMRID uh, to try and work those things out. But if we had not been making the investments to hire phenomenal scientists uh, that worked there and lived there and were available, uh, was no way we would have had the success we did to campaign, contain uh, those horrible plagues. Now, these facil facilities develop the countermeasures uh, against bioweapons and can quickly respond to novel threats uh, and with therapeutic therapeutics and vaccine research. So this is the type of research that can generate company benefits like we've seen in healthcare with COVID and sustainability. Uh, right now, we're struggling at USAMRID. Um, we've the new BSL facility, uh, which is the DOD's only BSL-4 level facility, uh, was due to be delivered in 2015. It now will be delivered, we think, in 2027. The cost was originally around $700 million. The cost now will blow by pretty much double that. Um, so we've had a, a, a lack of focus, a series of calamities uh, that have resulted in uh, we had to just go buy a whole new incinerator system. We had to get a whole new steam sterilization system because, you know, we're working on mice and primates there both to understand, you know, how these are affected. And so if we don't clean up the mess that we're creating, it's it can lead to a unbelievable future problem down the road. So this BSL-4 facility um, is moving, but moving slow. It's going to be 800,000 feet. It's actually completely finished as far as the building. What it doesn't have is those pieces to dispose of the waste, which malfunctioned. And we have a door containment problem where we have airflow going the wrong way. So we've got $130 million fix on that in the process now. 
uh, but obviously we we can't have you know air flowing out. We got to have air flowing only in uh, in this BSL four. So that's still um, under construction, but the, the building itself, desk, chairs, everything is done. So it's a massive facility uh, that will be the nation's uh, repository for all the BSL-3, BSL-4 work at the top level on the, the nastiest of the nasties in the bio, bio area. Um, we also have, uh, Frederick is also home in Fort Detrick, which has over 75,000 employees, so it's very big. Uh, the National Biodefense Analysis and Countermeasures Center called NBAC. And this is, again, they have their own BSL-4 lab there that does research for law enforcement. Uh, so this uh, lab is dedicated to give 24-7 bioforensic analysis. Uh, for the last 10 years, it's been a continuous operation uh, to work with um, all the different you know groups out there from FBI, DARPA, DITRA, HHS, NIH, and NIAD. Uh, so they're very involved in this area. But it's a great result of partnership because it's a work for others program, uh, which makes it unique and its capabilities uh, are more, more broadly available to all these different communities uh, we just mentioned. Now, to support the pandemic response, DHS and HHS have provided funding so that NBAC can address uh, the key knowledge gaps we have in aerosol stability. And that's been a big issue we saw as we had went through COVID. Uh, surface stability, decontamination, decontamination, and originally ineffectiveness uh, of our battle against COVID-19. But as a businessman, these public-private partnerships uh, are really important, and we have to get government more encouraged to do more and more public-private partnerships in research, development, logistics, then we can mount a better, more robust pandemic response because the question isn't a matter of if the next pandemic is coming. It's only a question of when is it coming and what exactly will it be. Uh, I recall talking to Francis Collins in 2016 uh, in December, um, well before COVID, and I asked Dr. Collins, I said, what is your number one issue that you see this country looking at and he described perfectly COVID-19. Just described it to a T. You know, aerosol, you know, coming out, the whole drill, flu-like, et cetera. And so, you know, we, we know about these things, but again, we're often short-term thinkers, and, and we've got to make that investment. So that's why I've been very focused since I got to Congress on trying to drive investment in things like NIH, working with Senator Roy Blunt, who's been a great partner on NIH work. And uh, that's the type of you know bipartisan cooperation that we should have. Uh, all of these these things are such a huge deal, have such potential downside uh, that's that's truly mind-boggling. So, in conclusion, you know the funding is crucial uh, to boosting biodefense innovation, and that biodefense innovation we all know how that spills over into all kinds of innovation in the private sector. Uh, so as co-chair of the Congressional Biodefense Caucus, I'm going to keep focused on Congress on it, uh, and we're going to continue to put people over politics. I think that's really the, the most important thing to make progress for all Americans. Um, 
as I always say, Congress isn't the fastest uh, at getting things done. Uh, but these infectious diseases, we've seen uh, the unbelievable cost of the whole world uh, and how fast it can go. So if government doesn't remain maintain some degree of agility, uh, it's going to be a bad, bad day. So we have to establish an all-hands-on-deck approach uh, to biodefense uh, that engages stakeholders, care providers, academia, and, of course, the private sector. Uh, so that's my, my thoughts today, and I'm happy to take any questions. Well, Congressman, thank you for that uh, very eloquent presentation, and uh, but even more, thank you for your commitment and the work you're doing. I, I want to follow up on two things you mentioned. The first is this critical importance around public-private partnerships, and it seems like things you've accomplished in your district and the things that are happening in your district seem to be in some ways a model for public-private partnership and cooperation. If you had to put your, if you had to describe the two or three factors that make public-private partnership the most successful, what what, what factors would, would, would you describe? Yeah, when, you, when you bring in the, the private sector uh, where we have no limits on pay, and incentives to, to get the absolute best possible people. At the end of the day, it's always brains. So as a CEO of a company that has, you know, I have 12,000 employees. My mission is to hire the smartest guys and gals. And if we have smart people, they'll make the right decision. So I think when you have these public-private partnerships, you're able to get a much higher higher caliber of folks, and that costs money. Uh, but the, the returns here can be significant. The downside is incomprehensibly bad. So I think that's the most important pieces, the people that you bring into uh, the room uh, that can really bring in different ideas. And I think also a lot of times we see in government, uh, sometimes in these areas of science, you know, we, we, we just need more diversity of thought and diversity of background. And folks that have gone the government route have a certain background or path that they followed. And in my company, uh, again, the more diverse thinkers we have that don't look at problems like I look at them. They look at them with a whole other lens. That's a home run. And, uh, that's where we get idea generation. And what we really need is, you know, innovative thinking that's not afraid to fail, uh, happy to fail fast, happy to learn from failure, because we're going to have a lot of failure here, and that's a damn good thing. And, you know, in private business, you know, we love failure. I actually try and measure it in my company. And if you don't have enough failure, you're not pushing the ceiling. You know, you're playing it safe. And, uh, you know, in this business, we've got to push the ceiling. Very well said. Very well said. Uh, you also mentioned your work with Senator Blunt and the, and the caucus. And I, uh, I have been in, in Congress now for some time, but I have been very concerned about the deep polarization and the dysfunction that has come with polarization for so long. Talk about your your current assessment of polarization and how much of an issue and problem that presents and trying to reach consensus on public policy in this space right now. Well, the toxicity, the t toxic nature is, uh, you know, I'm again new to it, but it's kind of amazing how toxic it is. I find it just incomprehensible. I mean, I, I, I could care less Democrats, Republicans. What it's about is we have a, we have a mission and we're trying to get something accomplished and things I work on heavier addiction and mental health and, you know, medical research. Those are the big focuses, but 
you know, those are those and all these things should be where we're getting together and coming up with a solution and doing it as a, as a team. I, I used to talk about Team Maryland. Well, you know, you think it should be Team America. That's what it should be. Uh, but instead, it's about how to score political points, uh, which I find revolting. And uh, I had breakfast this morning with the gentleman that had your job, the gentleman from New York, and, uh, and, he, and Mr. Schumer. And at breakfast, we talked about toxic, to toxicity uh, that we have and the difficulty that, you know, this is something in the CR that we absolutely, you know, got to have it happen. We got to get the damn budget out. But at the same time, there's other forces that they, sure, they agree with that, but, but really there's more points for them to score if we shut that government down and they're, they're very comfortable with that. And they think that'll score them points and move the whole agenda more in their direction. I find that just uh, is so outrageously bad. Uh, and it's, you know, they have a lot of folks here that are sometimes here for the wrong reason. We forget why we're here. You know, we're here for that 800,000 people that, that put us here. And if we are doing every single thing we can to make their life a little bit better each day, you know, and uh, shutting government down, we know that's a, that's a, that's a loser. And um, I, I talked a little bit later this morning to another senator that's, that's leaving uh, on the Republican side, and he made the same comment. He said it just gotten so toxic, and he's a gentleman that him and I are working together to get a bunch of mental health bills over the, the help committee. We're a total team. It's a pleasure working with him. It's always been a pleasure. And, and, and he's a Republican, and he doesn't care if I'm a Democrat, and I don't care what he is. We're just about getting stuff done. And uh, so you've got these folks, but as, as Senator Schumer said this morning, the, the ones that he's worked the most with on the other side of the aisle generally aren't always there. A lot of the same problem on our side of the aisle. Some of those folks that really want to work across just get frustrated and fed up. But the polarization's really mind-boggling. Like right now, this police bill. How do we not support our police? Everybody supports our police, yet we're having to corral up 218 votes for some a few people on the hard left that say they don't want to support the police overtly. Well, I'm on record. I'm with my policemen. And can we do better? Of course. And will we do better? Of course. And that's anything. But uh, that's that's craziness. And uh, But there's just too many. And the, the other senator, he's described them as the crazies. That was the actual quote. Um, so it's it's not good. Well, we we certainly applaud your efforts at uh, outreach and the bipartisan work you're doing, and hope we can we can make that the model for others as uh, as we continue to pursue these goals. Uh, Donna, um, first of all, I so enjoyed working with you over the years. Um, and your statements were remarkable. And we just talked to Tony Fauci about the need to invest in basic science because we wouldn't have the platforms. It's a, a non-brainer. Um, but I actually wanted to ask you a little about your specialty in, um, about opiate addiction and whether, because it has a lot to do with defense readiness, the economy, should we reconceptualize, rethink how we talk about um, a, what is an epidemic in more uh, defense terms, um, more economic terms in terms of its uh, impact. I mean, we talk about biodefense and we're talking about the introduction of, um, of uh, things like COVID 
and and other things. But the question is whether it should be a broader definition that includes some of the epidemics that are killing literally millions of people uh, around the world, this kind of addiction, which could be introduced by a rogue um, uh, a rogue institution um, internationally uh, as well. It's kind of an off-the-wall question, but you've thought a lot about these addiction uh, issues, but I'm wondering whether we ought to have a broader definition of things that are really dangerous uh, to our future. I think you should. I completely agree with you on that one. And addiction, as you uh, spoke about, is finally catching the attention of a lot of people. And I know Representative Brooks was involved in that when we were there for the one term we overlapped. And, uh, you know, when you use 108,000 people, and we've now, with 80% are fentanyl, of course, mm-hmm. and we've now lost a million in overdoses and just went from oxy to heroin to fentanyl. And there'll be another one after that. Um, and, I mean, Stanford's estimating 1.2 million dead in this century. 1.2 million, that's the number. No reason why that's, that's the course we're on. So it's, it's certainly is hurting our defense capabilities in the United States to a huge degree. It's po- folks in the prime of their life. I mean, this is a, our, de- our average life expectancy now is the same as it was in 2003. 20 years ago, that's where our life expectancy moved back to. That's pretty scary. You know, it's a jetliner every day of folks that are dying of overdoses. One, if we lost a plane every day, I think we'd be going crazy here. But we lose that plane every single day the last year, and it's a cost the society is about a trillion dollars. That's what it's measured at, a trillion dollars. So it's lives. The cost is unbelievable. So it's, it's cutting into all of our defense preparation because it's sucking so much capabilities financial capabilities and human capabilities, you know, out of our system, but it's also enriching to a huge degree some very, very horrible elements in the cartels. So we know the drugs are coming from two major cartels in Mexico. You know, Obrador has made a decision of hugs, not not bullets, not guns, and he is not doing anything about the cartels whatsoever. Zero meaningful work. Zero. And you know, I went, took the, I was on a commission, which I was co-chair with Senator Tom Cotton. We went to Mexico. We did a CODEL there, brought 16 people down there. We spoke with everybody. At the end of the, end of the mission, Tom Cotton, who's very conservative with myself, we both agreed on every single thing. And that was, we will not stop the supply. We can disrupt it, but we cannot stop it. So much as we might want a China bash or Mexico bash or border bash, it won't stop the supply. So we agreed that we have to work on the demand side. But as these cartels, though, now represent about one-third of the GDP in Mexico. They have a $1.2 trillion GDP. And their roughly overall strength is $300 plus billion. Because not just drugs. It's tobacco. It's automobiles. It's retail. It's extortion. They've moved into the economy in, in a, such a huge way that almost 30-some percent of the Mexican economy so we have our next door neighbor destabilized and some very evil people, phenomenally rich beyond belief. And will they, could they make a bad decision in the bio area? Could they make some crazy purchase and release? Anything could happen to those, those type of folks. We can't let really evil people have that kind of wealth and just stand by and watch it. 
Have they got into wine? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm guessing they probably own a few wineries in, in the Gaja, <laughs> up, 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 up in, in the peninsula there. I'm guessing. <laughs> Thank you for that answer. I yield. Thank you, Donna. Jim? Thank you, Congressman. So I was uh, an authorizer for 12 years in, on energy and commerce, never an appropriator. And, you know, the authorizing, I was on authorizing committees create these programs. You guys, the appropriators, put out the money. And the thing that's always uh, in short supply is the oversight to actually go back and say, okay, so we created this program and we gave you all this money and how are you doing with it? And it just seems, seems like there's never enough time. We're so busy creating new programs, spending new money to go back and look at what we've, we've actually done. So like, my question is, as an appropriator, uh, when, on the, on the, if you look at biodefense and all of the myriad programs spread throughout the federal government, can the, can the Appropriations Committee do more oversight um, uh, in the course of a year, or is it just just not enough time and appropriations to do that kind of thing is at all. Well, first of all, your whole premise, boy, do I agree with that. I mean, we are on the same page on that. And, you know, and that actually came up in the conversation I had uh, with the retiring senator this morning. And his suggestion is next year, if things switch over and the House is in Republican hands, his suggestion is, and I think it's a good suggestion, and I'm, I'm going to execute on that, is go out and look at policies and uh, groups and monies and spends that we've appropriated for years and years and years and they're sacred cows and someone's going to be mad at you but I really don't care that much if they're not producing for the American people and we should be doing something different now than we did 20 years ago is there any business you don't do something different 20 years later? Of course you're doing things different 20 years later. Things have changed but we keep doing all the old stuff and keep adding new stuff but we got a gut some of the old stuff that just has diminished diminished or no returns yet still keeps getting done because it certain goes out to you know groups that are invested in it but we're going to have to stand firm somehow somewhere and say no and then if we cut back on things you can make a better argument for the things we want to appropriate now that are new and different can be very effective uh, and no they don't have the time to look at it the staffs just you know, it just put they just put it out. You know, we would need to have a, a appropriate a separate group of folks with that job to go back and it's like base closings. <laughs> it's no different. We need to do, we need to do program closings. We have a lot of programs that I guarantee you could be closed and that money be twice as efficient on something new. Maybe that technology is part of it. So not happening. It's an it's an interesting role for you for a minority to to play actually, um, since you assuming that the Republicans do take over the House and you guys your side of the aisle doesn't have the gavels, can't call the hearings, can't call the meetings, and all of that. Um, but but there's no reason why ad hoc groups, members of of the minority, um, Gingrich did this uh, between '93 uh, and '94. He created task force among minority Republicans and to look at different agencies of the government. And there's no reason that you can't call members in, uh, representatives of the various departments and agencies, on an on a informal basis and ask a whole lot of questions and get, ask them for a whole lot of uh, material and, and responses. You've got to have a staff on that. Uh, our, the skill set of the average member just isn't that. Uh, it's not a skill set of a, a CEO. Uh, that's run a business 
and it's you know it's often someone that's come through the, the ranks as a, a legislator and so you, you need to have it in a CEO type skill set that's all about asking questions and keep asking you know CEO that's asking questions and knowing what questions to ask that's the kind of we need to bring some other folks folks in I love the vacant private partnership where they got 10% of the of whatever they saved they'd really be incentivized we'll back sir Thank you, Jim. Susan. Thank you, and I'm sorry I wasn't here right when you came in, and welcome uh, to yeah, our commission. Um, it's been a really refreshing way for me to stay involved. Actually, uh, you may or may not know, I started the Biodefense Caucus with Congresswoman Eshoo, and I'm thrilled to hear that you are one of the co-chairs and that the Biodefense Caucus lives, and it is a great way to educate staffers particularly on issues and so I hope that you really run with that and good luck with it because what we've learned and what this commission has been about since uh, I was in Congress is the complacency and the fact that you know members of Congress move on to the next problem they move on to the next urgent issue and that we often as a body forget about the importance of long-term funding, uh, the importance of building the enterprise and making sure we're ready for that next pandemic. So my question to you is, as we are coming out of uh, this pandemic, how, what ideas do you as a former CEO have in keeping our attention on pandemic preparedness? And it doesn't have to be focused on COVID, of course, we need to think about the next unknown yep. disease. Um, but how do we get my former and your current colleagues to stay focused on this? And then my next question is with respect to the uh, private, uh, how do we um, try to ensure that the private sector partners, because I do think that members of Congress listen to the private sector, how can we engage the private sector partners in this whole issue to be even more effective in advocating with members of Congress? Well, that's a tough one. I'm not real optimistic either. Uh, I'm not at all optimistic. As you know, everybody turns, turns on to the next, uh, next day and life goes on and it's, it's really so wrong. I mean, what we should be thinking about everything we do is what's right for our kids put it in that context, what's right for our kids, we would spend so much money evaluating, you know, what happened, how we let it happen. When Francis said this is going to happen three, four years before it happened, so the smartest guy in the room, he knows where it's coming down, yet he couldn't get anybody's attention to, to get the dollars and dollars spent on it. So it's, I think we've got a real tough battle. So groups like this is, is certainly very important. You need folks like myself that are long-term thinkers that are to be evangelists and talk about it but uh, there seems to be a it's all done we're all finished and what you know we should be taking away what the learnings are and we should be taking away what the research is uh, to continue for the next one because it might be a variant of this one or it could be completely new but uh, and getting places like USAMRID fully funded and up and running is a top priority so we got the best damn labs and we have the best scientists, you know, in the world. I mean, our brain drain right now to China who can give a young researcher over like NIST, you know, a great job and a great lab, but then they take all the IP, you know, so we're losing our smartest people. 
So, you know, one thing I've talked about is, you know, how we need to change our immigration system where literally it's a steady four-year-old idea. You study in the U.S. for literally a semester and we give you a path to citizenship. If we have all the smart people here, we're going to be way better off. So I'd like to, what we did with Iran, Iran, we got all the smart people in Iran came over here uh, when the Shah fell. And boy, what a great group. What a great group of Americans. And we need more groups like that because uh, they like to be here, but we've made it so hard and so slow to get people here. So I, I would go for talent again. That's what matters, talent, people. But I, I keeping those legislators on their toes, you know better than me. Good luck. Well, Congressman Cole has been a real champion as an appropriator, just so you know. I love that so guy. So as a partner, I hope that you and Tom Cole really lead the charge um, to keep our focus on it. Thank you. And he thanks worked for with him. He's, a, he's fantastic. He is fantastic. Yeah, Thank I you. I really like Tom Cole. <laughs> well, Congressman, we are so grateful for your common sense, for your dedication, for your willingness to work across the aisle for your commitment to these causes. We, uh, we need more people like you, and we just wish you all the success as you continue to work at it, and uh, we hope we can continue to stay in touch. We need your wisdom, and we need your guidance as we go forward, and we want to be as helpful as we can, and let us know how, uh, how we might weigh in on issues that you care deeply about. Yeah, and I would say, Senator, and everybody there, we really, it's really the other way around. We really need you. Because we just sit there, and as you know, you've all been there way longer than I ever was, but I can see no one's a subject matter expert, and they're all just continually thinking ST, short term. So we really need you to give us the ideas, the folks that are into the weeds, you know, your staff and things like that, that know where we need to put money, where we need to make these investments, and that's what we need to hear and get direction. And then I'm a, I can execute that. I can execute that mission. But we need wow. experts to help us. So thank you. You bet. Thank you. Still support the police now. You think good idea to support the police? Yeah. Panelists, thank you for joining us today. For the benefit of my colleagues, um, J-Labs, is uh, we, th this, this hearing, of course, is all about um, banding together partnerships, and we've talked a lot about um, public-private partnerships. Well, uh, Johnson & Johnson created a thing called J-Labs, and it is a global network of incubators for small biopharmaceutical companies, and we have three uh, terrific representatives of, uh, of J-Labs, and they are, and I'll introduce them. Um, Maria Croyle is uh, the scientific founder and chief scientific officer of Gerada Thin Film, We'll hear all about that. Brian Wiley is a senior vice president of corporate development at ENA Respiratory. And Bruce pa uh, Batten, Dr. Patton, is uh, CEO of Grip Molecular. And so I think that what we're going to do here is you're going to make presentations. I think we don't have time for questions, but we very much look forward to your presentations. And thank you. And I don't know if we decide to go in any order, but we'll start with Marie. Thank you. Hello, I'm Maria Croyle, Chief Scientific Officer and co-founder of Gerada. I thank the Commission for the opportunity to speak here today. Our goal at Gerada is to help vaccines and biologic drugs break free from the cold chain and the associated global distribution patterns that we all experienced during the COVID-19 pandemic. 
To be honest, our technology was developed for pandemic situations. As a professor at the University of Texas at Austin, I led an international team to develop a needle-free formulation of an Ebola vaccine that was easy to transport, distribute, and administer in developing countries. Our first task was to embed the vaccine within a film matrix that could protect it from the harsh African climate. The film that's shown in the photo by my picture could be placed under the tongue for oral vaccination or dissolved in saline and, be, and used as a nasal spray. This work was supported through my academic lab at the National Institutes of Health. What we also learned during this project was that the film protected the vaccine for up to three years when stored on a laboratory bench at room temperature. We also found that a solution made from film containing vaccine and given as a nasal spray fully protected primates from exposure to a lethal dose of Ebola. This was important as the same dose of vaccine stored frozen in saline and given by injection, which we all hate, um, only protected half the animals that were exposed to Ebola as well. Our technology is also very space-saving. If 350,000 doses of the current BCG vaccine were needed today, they would weigh about 6,000 pounds, require the space of an American football field in Wisconsin in the winter <laughs> in order to keep them cold for transport and storage. If we took the same, dose, same number of doses and embedded it within our film, they would weigh about a pound, maybe 20 pounds with packaging, and take up the space of a few reams of paper. And again, we, at this point, we wouldn't need to monitor any kind of temperature. We also kept the manufacturing process simple and resource sparing within the, with the goal of really transferring this to developing countries. That's what we wanted to do. We can mix the vaccine with a film formulation, pour it in molds, and have film ready to package within eight hours and out for the last FedEx pickup of the day. It's important to note that our formulation adds approximately 20 to 25 cents to the cost of a given vaccine. As a new startup with a potentially disruptive technology, we found ourselves in a circuitous interactions with big pharma, contract manufacturing organizations, and representatives from regulatory agencies that we affectionately called the Vortex. Each found our technology interesting, but were hesitant to get on board due to potential concerns with manufacturing, scale-up, regulatory review, and established systems for delivery already in place. When I heard about the BARDA Blue Knight program, I knew it was the perfect fit for Gerada. Our mentors understood our technology and mission immediately. As our biggest champions, they've been able to pull us out of that vortex. They've supported a move to, our move to J-Labs at the Texas Medical Center in Houston so that we can fulfill multiple contracts that we currently have to evaluate our technology in the animal health, gene therapy, antimicrobial, and vaccine spaces. It also provides us access to facilities that will accelerate our R&D efforts with regard to stabilizing mRNA and cell-based therapies within the film. Our participation in the Blue Knight and Wheels Up program has allowed us to make connections with several pharmaceutical partners as, regular, as well as regulatory consultants to help us stay on track and get this technology out to those that need it the most. Prior, prior to becoming a Blue Knight company, we had been working to get a semi-automated production system ready to produce our films in large quantities and in a more um, re reproducible manner. Later this year, we plan to work with BARDA to take part in the recently announced National Biotechnology and Biomanufacturing Initiative to get this to a fully automated system and to identify some space to actually house this equipment in. To wrap up, I want to re remind the Commission that this technology originated through an NIH-funded project in my academic lab. 
I knew how to successfully navigate that NIH system to get funding to support my research. I also knew that this technology could significantly make an impact in the national biodefense effort. However, getting time with BARDA and navigating the DOD funding mechanisms was a really tough nut to crack. Participation in the JLab's quickfire challenge in 2017 motivated me to start Gerada. However, still interactions with government were not easy to do at that particular time. The Blue Knight program has really facilitated this, getting everybody in the room, having these important discussions, and is really in line with the theme of the meeting today. I mean, we really did need partners to help this get out of my lab. <laughs> So again, I want to thank the Commission for the opportunity to talk here today. I know this is the first time representatives from industry have been invited to speak to the Commission, and I appreciate the opportunity as myself and my fellow um, panelists are small startups. We're still very small, but we are ready to go and we're ready to take a part in, in the national biodefense effort. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Crum. Before we go to Brian, I, I described what JLabs is, but I failed to say is that the Blue Knight program is a cooperation between BARDA and JLabs, and so I apologize for that. But go ahead, please, Brian. Thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, first of all, I want to thank the organizers and the commission uh, for being able to be here today. It's a, it's a true honor to, to be here, and it's also been an honor to be selected as a Blue Knight company. At Ena Respiratory, we're developing uh, a drug called Ena 051. And essentially, it's for the, for the prevention of respiratory viral infections. And importantly, we're addressing a significant unmet need that is not just related to future pandemics, but also one that's very important for, for many individuals today. And as part of that program, our, our core strategy includes <clears throat> excuse me, a partnership with the COPD Foundation. And as part of that, we have a vision of protecting millions of high-risk individuals who, even in the absence of a pandemic, face an increased risk of serious complications, such as hospitalization and death as a result of exposure to multiple virus, viral infections, respiratory viral infections. So ENO051 is it's a pan-antiviral nasal spray, and it's designed to be effective protection against multiple respiratory viruses, so not just targeting one particular virus. The core scientific concept behind the drug is the activation of the host immune response in order to eliminate the virus, primarily in the respiratory, upper respiratory nasal cavity, before it can spread systemically. So really a first line of defense against viral respiratory infection. We've completed two clinical trials, two small clinical trials to date, to establish preliminary efficacy and safety data. The first of those was a phase one trial that we completed earlier this year, and that established initial safety and biomarker data, and really affirmed a lot of the preclinical data that we generated across models that included flu, rhinovirus, as well as COVID. We've also now completed a phase 2A challenge study, um, and this will really serve as a proof of concept efficacy study for us, and results from that will be available in early October, and we look forward to sharing those with you when they're available. So as I said before, ENO051 is not meant to target any one specific virus. Its, its mechanism is really designed to, prevent, to provide protection against essentially any respiratory virus that we might be exposed to. It's also important to recognize that this includes new strains that might not be addressable by existing vaccines or therapeutics. Additionally, uh, ENO051 has a number of unique product attributes that really translate directly into important benefits, not only for patients, but also for use in the event, in the event of a future pandemic. It's self-administered as a nasal spray, so it's much more convenient than, and accessible to patients than antibodies and vaccines that have to be administered on site by a healthcare professional. This can be done at home by the individual patient. Additionally, we've intentionally engineered the drug so it has no systemic bioavailability. This hopefully will reduce the risk of side effects, also makes it very compatible with vaccines and other drugs, and really we view it as much more complementary versus competitive. It's not an either or, this would really be used in conjunction with, with other therapies. 
There's also no potential for viral resistance. So the same formulation can be used no matter what the strain is, no matter what the virus is, as long as it's a respiratory generated virus. In summary, for the, for the product itself, the broad spectrum of activity and the non-pandemic applications for ENA051 make it an excellent candidate for pandemic preparedness. Assuming we have regulatory success and approval with our current plan, there'll be experience with patient use, there'll be an established distribution, and there'll be readily available supply that can accelerate the transition to put this self-administered product in the hands of healthcare workers, military personnel, teachers, everyone else that's on the front line of a future pandemic. So what has it been like being a, a Blue Knight company in the experience? First of all, being selected as a Blue Knight company generates, generated an immediate increase in scientific credibility, exposure to potential partners, investors, and this would have taken us much longer to do on our own as a small company, privately based company, privately funded company. We've also benefited from a wide range of expertise. As Maria said, we, we've had input on manufacturing, regulatory, clinical development. All of these accelerate the process, accelerated development. And as was mentioned earlier in today, acceleration of development of these drugs is, is always the goal, not only for business purposes, but to get them in the hands of patients and be able to put them in action. We've not been the beneficiary yet of any direct funding from, from BARDA. However, as a result of being a Blue Knight company, we're in discussions now with BARDA, with DOD, as well as the Gates Foundation, all of these related to potential funding to help accelerate the program. Um, I'll wrap up with some maybe general observations and learnings. What we have found that sometimes the funding parameters can be perhaps unintentionally restrictive. Um, and one example of that is we were informed a few weeks ago that we probably wouldn't qualify for one of the grants because we were given on a weekly uh, basis. And the, the concept of the grant was was more around you know one and done sort of thing. And I think building more flexibility into the grants, allowing more flexibility for unique technologies that we haven't thought about today would allow for new technologies to get funded. Another ch challenge is you know, the enthusiasm, and this was mentioned earlier today too, the enthusiasm for pandemic preparedness sort of comes and goes. And building a business around that is a real challenge. We're addressing that by having a prior, prior, primary development plan that's outside of a pandemic. But having incentives and funding that help bridge those gaps would be very important. And finally, you know, perhaps an obvious one is the difference between large complex organizations such as the government and small biotech companies that are run by four or five individuals can be really uh, vast and continuing to strive for less administrative burden, shorter processes, the time to get a grant sometimes can be almost outside the life cycle of, of what small companies live in. And so trying to accelerate those, understanding the balance is always important would be a huge suggestion. And um, with that, I'll end my contact information is on the slide. If anyone has any follow-up questions, I'd be happy to answer them. Thank you. Thank you. I wish we did have time for questions because I have a thousand of them. But uh, <laughs> we'll uh, another time, perhaps. Uh, uh, Dr. Batten. Good afternoon. I'm Bruce Batten. I'm the founder of Grip Molecular Technologies. And I'm truly honored to have an opportunity to be here today to share some of the Grip story. What if I were to tell you that you could achieve laboratory-grade diagnostic results with this device? And in addition to that, you could get those results literally in minutes, essentially anywhere that you wanted to. In your home on that Sunday night when you start developing those respiratory symptoms, in elder care facilities, schools, businesses, airports. GRIP believes that by putting laboratory-grade diagnostics literally into the palm of your hand will transform medical diagnostics as we know it. The technology is based on 
developing electronic biosensors that are housed in this cartridge. And those biosensors can detect biomarkers associated with disease-causing pathogens like viruses and bacteria. The accuracy and sensitivity of this device exceeds that of what you can achieve with a lab-grade test, and you can get those results in minutes. The cartridge can be configured in any number of ways for any different type of disease. And using upper respiratory as an example, we can detect multiple upper respiratory pathogens in a single sample in one test. So again, on that Sunday night when you're feeling those symptoms and you want to know whether you're coming down with a cold, the flu, or COVID, you have something you can pull out of your medicine cabinet and test and get an answer again in minutes. The way this works, it's relatively simple in that we load a sample, and that sample can be saliva, a nasal swab, could be urine, could be blood. But the sample's loaded into the cartridge. The biosensors are housed within the cartridge. They analyze the sample. The result then is transmitted to your cell phone by, by wireless communication. And then you have those results so that you can share those with your healthcare provider. And we could do all of that, again, in minutes. And here's the kicker. This can be reconfigured rapidly to meet any potential biologic threat that we encounter, whether it's a future pandemic or, in fact, a bioterrorist act. The validation of technologies, like the technologies that are found in the GRIP cartridge, require expertise, technical expertise, time, and money. The goal of this technical validation that we go through is to de-risk our projects so that we can attract funding, which allows us to scale product development and commercialization. It's no surprise, then, that small startup companies need help and nurturing through this process and getting through the stage that entrepreneurs refer to as the walk through the valley of death. There are numerous ways and routes to seek help and partnerships from the government. SBIR grants and STTR grants are, are, are great examples. The downside, as already has been pointed out, is that these grants take time. GRIP recently received some funding from NIH. It took 18 months from pro project submission to actual award uh, for us to get started. And frankly, 18 months is an eternity for a small company. Another way to seek help from the government is to, is to establish partnerships with BARDA. BARDA has developed a very unique process where they can partner with small stage companies at a variety of stages in their evolution. Our initial contact with BARDA was through their network of BARDA-funded incubators. A group found lab space at University Enterprise Laboratories in St. Paul, Minnesota, which is an incubator that's being funded by BARDA. As a result, an invitation came out of that for us to have a presentation with the technical team at BARDA through their TechWatch program. And as a result of that, we got on the BARDA radar. Soon after we met and achieved some technical milestones, we were uh, invited to participate in the Blue Knight program. And that particip participation has opened up a number of doors, not only to investors, but has provided direct input uh, from both BARDA and J&J Labs into our technical evaluation. 
uh, as a specific example of how of the support that we've received when we urgently needed lab space in, in the Boston area to be close to one of our collaborators, J&J Labs was able to fast track that and get us into lab space in Cambridge, which is no easy feat. Another opportunity to partner with, with BART is through the DRIVE BAA Easy program. Uh, GRIP was recently awarded funding through this program to develop an in-home diagnostic. We now interact with BARDA's team, which is a team of scientists and, and engineers on a regular basis. So through this partnership, we're getting a lot more than just the, the capital that we need to keep the labs running. Lastly, buoyed by this support from BARDA, GRIP has progressed to a point where we've completed our technical validation and are moving into our clinical validation. And as a result of that, we're now getting interest from institutional investors that will enable us to get the funds that we need to then scale the product development and commercialization. And part of that discussion is with the newly formed BARDA Ventures. As I've laid out, BARDA has developed a number of ways to partner with early stage companies, and early stage companies really need to be helped and nurtured and, and partnered through this process so that they can validate their great ideas. Navigating this walk through the valley of death is where most early stage companies fail. Primarily because they're burned through their capital before they finish their technical validations. Who knows how many great ideas and innovations have never made the light of day because these companies ran out of support. I urgently urge you to consider funding partnership programs like the BARTA program so that these impactful ideas can be transformed into impactful products that can address some of the healthcare challenges that we face. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Three uh, wonderful examples of the amazing uh, creativity and uh, uh, innovation in uh, U.S. small companies uh, and also great examples of what this public-private partnership can do. And I hope that as you walk through the valley of death, you feel no, fear no evil because Bard and J-Labs aren't with you. <laughs> Thank you. Our next two panelists, uh, and they are uh, Sandeep Patel. Dr. Sandeep Patel is the Director of the Division of Research, Innovation, and Ventures at BARDA, and uh, just had a commercial. And, uh, and also uh, with us we have Labib, Dr. Labib Aboud, uh, Chairman and CEO of Global Health Investment Corporation. And uh, with that, we'll start with you, Dr. Patel. Uh, thanks, everyone, and thanks for having me. Uh, uh, a pleasure to be here. Um, weren't the three companies great, by the way? There's, there's 22 more of them in our portfolio, um, so there's a lot of exciting work we're supporting. Um, <clears throat> so um, my name's Sandeep Patel. I run a, a division at BARDA called DRIVE, Division of Research Innovation Ventures. And you know, my job, in short, is to, is to search far and wide for companies, for technologies that are um, early, nascent, uh, not yet proven, but have potential transformative uh, features for, for future pandemic preparedness and in biodefense. And um, what I've been learning along the way is that, you know, one, the, the pace of innovation in, in you know, biotech and in medical diagnostics, digital health, 
computational biology, immunology, and all of these fields. I mean, it's quite unprecedented. It's moving at a, at a, at a fast clip right now in terms of development. Um, and what's exciting is that this is enabling um, the possibility of developing entirely new types of medical countermeasures, entirely new types of capabilities um, for not only to prepare for future uh, pandemic threats and other health security threats, but really to be in a position to potentially prevent them from ever happening. Um, and, and you heard a little bit, but, you know, the, the kinds of things that we're seeing are things like, um, you know, new adaptable vaccine platforms, you know, ones that are uh, potentially variant proof or more manufacturable um, uh, and, you know, can potentially stimulate durable protective immunity over time. Um, microneedle skin patches to completely transform how we deliver uh, vaccines to increase the scale and scope, the cost um, uh, of vaccine delivery. Uh, we're, you know, investments in uh, multi-organ tissue chips uh, that can uh, simulate how uh, our bodies might react to potential medical countermeasures that could allow us to screen a lot more of these in, in a short amount of time, um, even potentially obviating the need for, for animal models and things like that. Um, new therapeutics that are designed for um, treating the, the disease that's a consequence sometimes of, of uh, these infections, things that we know are actually causing the, the severe versions of, of these diseases, multi-organ uh, immune dysfunctions, things like sepsis and ARDS, um, you know, treatments for those are, are starting to become a reality now. Um, uh, Low-cost, uh, accessible diagnostics, you know, one, you know, the, the, the possibility of taking an entire suite of lab assays that are done in the lab and, and bringing them all to the home, which will be potentially transformative. So there's a lot going on. Um, and what's remarkable to, to, um, to me is that the, the locus of activity, the, the real excitement on this is happening at the startup level. Like, this is where the action is at. Um, at the startups and at the, the labs that are spinning out these startups. Um, in fact, we during COVID-19, we saw a lot of these emerging companies um, take center stage in terms of uh, their, their ability, the, the response for, for the COVID-19 um, uh, pandemic. So mRNA vaccine technology was really brought to bear by, by two startups, right, um, that were supported, actually de-risked by a variety of federal government uh, partners over the years, um, but 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 brought by by early um, early stage companies, uh, many of the EUAs for COVID nineteen diagnostics, uh, especially the ones focused on sort of the new frontier of home based diagnostics, were really brought to bear by by small companies or recently emerging companies. the The problem, though, in general, is that uh, uh, current reimbursement structures, healthcare system, um, really pushes a lot of these companies to look at the the um, the most commercially attractive use cases, uh, which often leaves behind pandemic preparedness and biodefense. I mean, if your business plan is centered around pandemic preparedness, you're in serious trouble, right? Um, and, and so, I spend a lot of my time talking to these companies, traveling, trying to figure out, you know, how do we how do we take this exciting technology and, and put it in a position where where it's it's useful in these scenarios? And and what they're telling me, what I'm seeing. Um, is that they're all under this pressure, right, to to um, to prioritize between the path of least risk for commercialization and and what might be of highest impact, and um, you know it's worth pointing out in general. I think it was pointed out earlier, but just to emphasize this: startup companies in general face a really tough uphill climb. The the risk to succeed is is very high, and that's you know I think it's a good thing to have that 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 competition. If you're a life science company, it's even harder to succeed, and if you're a health security company, uh, that that climb is is much much harder as well. 
Um, th there's no predictable, stable market, um, and so it just makes it very difficult. And so one of the things that I think we need to do that we're doing at Drive um, uh, across the board, and I'll describe in a minute, is to, is to give these companies and technologies a longer runway um, to shave off some of that risk so that they can pursue you know, what makes sense for them as a company, but that we can also position these technologies for, for, for use um, in pandemic preparedness. Um, so this is pretty much exactly what we do at Drive. Um, that's sort of our, our vision. We have a variety of programs um, within Drive that, that aim to do this in, in kind of different ways. And so you heard a little bit from three of the, the 25 companies uh, in our JLabs Blue Knight uh, uh, portfolio. So this is a wonderful partnership we have, J&J, &J, to position these companies in one of these incubators all across North America. Um, and and what, what we found, and you heard a little bit earlier, is that you know this is an opportunity for us to engage with these companies early to help them kind of figure out paths for development, um, to de-risk all of these things, you know, clinical development, uh, uh, manufacturing, uh, networking access, um, you know, engagement with BARDA on a number of different levels. Um, We've also supported through direct partnerships with early stage companies, um, uh, uh, 70 projects with companies and not just startup companies, but all, you know, often larger companies as well, academic labs, a whole sort of suite of, of groups um, across 12 of our R&D programs that are all focused on sort of these ambitious um, uh, preparedness kind of goals. Um, we also, through our BARDA Accelerator Network, which is a network of 13 um, local accelerators across the US. So these are, these are groups that are designed to support startups, um, uh, either like, you know, they sometimes have geographic focus areas, like they operate in a certain area, or they have uh, uh, like categorical kind of focus areas, like medical devices or things like that. So we have a whole network of this built so that we are in a position to actually support hundreds of companies at, at early stages as well. And so we've sort of created this ecosystem, this network, um, um, uh, which, which for us is really important because it build, helps us build this pipeline, right? We see what's coming. We can talk to them early. We can kind of shape their direction a little bit. And it helps us learn where technology is at, where the leading edges are, where, you know, how science is sort of moving into the, into the, um, uh, in, you know, in, in, into industry. And this is really important for us just to, as a horizon scoping kind of exercise. Um, <clears throat> so just to step back, and you'll hear from uh, our, our partner, GHIC, about BARDA Ventures um, a little bit later, but um, just to be clear, I think our thesis on all of this is that I think, despite what I said about uh, pandemic preparedness and business plans, I think there, there, there is a way that we can achieve both impact and commercial success. I think, there, I think those two things can come together, and I think it, it just requires the right de-risking approach. And so there's a few ways to think about this. One is... Um, thinking about threat agnostic technologies. And so, you know, instead of having technologies uh, that are only specifically focused on a, on a specific scenario, on, on a, you know, a neutralizing a specific virus or, or, or those kinds of things, you know, thinking about products that have use, use no matter what the threat is, um, whether it's a therapeutic that has broad acting purpose, whether it's a diagnostic technology that can be positioned no matter what the, the situation. These are things that are, are, make sense from a commercial perspective because they have multiple use cases. They're a platform technology. They push us, uh, in terms of capabilities broader and they actually can help us develop vaccines, therapeutics, diagnostics, you know, for specific scenarios actually that much easier. Um, the other related to that, the other piece of this is thinking about dual use technologies, right? So there are plenty of things like we saw this with mRNA that have specific infectious disease use cases, but also have a wide variety of other applications and focusing on these 
also puts us in a position where we can ensure commercial success and sustainability of these technologies, but then be useful in an emergency. Um, the last thing I wanted to mention um, uh, around this is that in terms of partnerships, so we're, we're built on partnerships at Drive, at BARDA. Um, you know, BARDA's, uh, uh, we're really proud of the fact that we've brought 65 now products through FDA licensure over the last 15, 16 years in partnership with, with industry and academia and, and others. Um, you know, I think this is, this is really important to, to do. And, and so we built the entire organization around these public-private partnerships. Um, what, what has been useful during the COVID-19 pandemic and what I think we need to do a lot more of is thinking about positioning these partnerships so that we can rapidly respond to. And, and you know, one example is this, actually, um, uh, it was mentioned by, by uh, Grip Molecular, we, we partnered with them through this mechanism, but this EZBAA contract vehicle we've set up. So this is something that allows us to rapidly partner with a lot of industry players um, and, and support technologies early and fast. Uh, we use this at the beginning of the pandemic to actually build BARDA's entire COVID uh, diagnostics program at a time when there wasn't uh, diagnostics widely available um, early in the pandemic. And this allowed us to partner very quickly with um, I think over over 20 uh, companies to get you know uh, uh, several dozen uh, EUAs in place early. Um, so having these kinds of part these vehicles, I think in, in a position is really useful. I think thinking about the right sets of public private partnerships, uh, especially since industry moves fast in a lot of different ways, thinking about how to position these beforehand is going to be really important for future pandemics. And um, one of the things I worry about generally, is is the you know a, a cognizant of availability bias that you know we're we're always going to try to solve for what was the last problem, and and I think we need to really think creatively about what are the variety of issues that we're going to face, um, especially now that I think you know we're, we're going to live with pandemics more more frequently than than we had in the past, um, trying to position these partnerships ahead of time um, so that they're useful when we need them. Um, I'll. I'll and the last thing I'll mention is this partnership with with BARDA, uh, with GHIC, the Global Health Investment Corporation. This is an entirely new way that we've established partnerships. We, we started this last year. Um, this was launched based off a, a 21st Century Cures authorization that we received to, to do a basically a venture capital partnership, to, to find another uh, way that's industry standard among among VCs to, to invest in companies early. Um, and help them along the path of commercialization in a sustainable way. And, and this is now in full operation with our, with our partner, and um, I'm sure Labib will, will talk more about the, the partnership from his side. Um, but um, so a lot of lessons learned. Um, you know, I think the, the sort of hope, the, 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 the quick points that I have are one is we need more patient capital. We need to give these companies more runway. There's a lot of really promising technologies that are, that are um, uh, not always in a position to succeed unless we give them the the, the, the runway to, to test them out. Um, we need to expand our toolkit of investment tools, um, equity finance partnership being one. Loans is another sort of authority that I think is going to be really important for rapid response. Um, and then, you know, three, we need to really think about these threat agnostic approaches so that we're not just uh, preparing for one particular scenario, but all scenarios simultaneously. So uh, with that, I'll stop. We can take questions later, but maybe I'll... We'll turn Thank to you, Dr. Uh, Patel and uh, Dr. Aboud. <clears throat> um, thank you very much. I, I would like to thank the commission and the staff um, for the opportunity to speak today alongside of Sandeep at today's session focused on partnerships. And, and more broadly, um, thank the commission for the work that it is doing. Um, my name is Labib Aboud, and I'm 
chairman and CEO of the Global Health Investment Corporation. By way of background, I've spent the last two decades or so in the field of global health, trying to focus on establishing innovative partnerships across the public, private, and philanthropic sectors, working to advance vaccines against various global health threats. The Global Health Investment Corporation uh, is an independent, nonprofit co uh, corporation that was established a decade ago. And it was born from the vision of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to try to crowd in and mobilize private capital to invest in global health product development, strategically aligned with the foundation's mission. And there's a parallel it's coming with our BARDA partnership. GHIC was initially established to create a, a series of global health-focused investment funds that could invest in companies uh, to advance promising products and try to generate impact in global health. With the foundation's support and many others, we launched our first investment fund and supported companies across a range of vaccines, diagnostics, devices, um, and uh, therapeutics. And uh, there have been a number, 14 registered products, and, and uh, millions of lives have been touched by that work. That fund helped validate this concept, this thesis that could private capital come and be mobilized in a strategically aligned way in, in global health. And that's exactly what we're doing together um, with BARDA in this partnership. Uh, last year, as Sandeep mentioned, we had the opportunity to launch what we believe is a exciting and novel partnership uh, to bring this type of mission focused investment model to the field of biodefense and more broadly health security to support and advance BARDA's mission. And I'd like to just briefly elaborate on a few of the key features of our BARDA Ventures GHIC partnership. The, the core goal at center is advancing technology that's relevant to medical countermeasure, product development, and health security, including pandemic preparedness and response. And in an effort uh, together to increase the speed and flexibility of funding, including mobilizing additional third-party capital. So there are three key pillars to our underlying agreement with BARDA. One is that we receive BARDA-provided capital and make mission-aligned investments as a strategic overlay to all the investments. Second, that we leverage private capital, at least on a one-to-one -one basis or better, into those investments. And third, when returns are received distributions from the investments with BARDA Capital, those returns are reinvested in the future, into future investments to drive future impact. We work very closely together with the BARDA team. BARDA provides incredible support uh, throughout its leadership and, and its divisions, Sandeep and many colleagues. BARDA helps provide strategic um, advice and guidance on opportunities for mission-relevant uh, investments. They provide network referrals and uh, open up their stakeholder uh, network to our team. They provide scientific and technical expertise and funding. Um, on, on our side at GHSC, working closely with, with BARDA, we reach out into the world to identify, evaluate, um, and execute strategic venture capital investments that are designed to accelerate technologies or products that have mission relevance. We also are mobilizing additional third-party capital into those investments, and we're supporting those companies in the portfolio on a going forward basis to try to help support them and, and, and 
advance them to working with them to advance to commercialization and sustainability. In terms of additionality, what's different about this? This is a tool, as, as Sandeep mentioned, it's another tool in the toolbox uh, to deploy funding through a venture investment equity mechanism that's been externalized uh, through GHIC. Um, it's fast and flexible uh, in, in terms of the execution. Um, we have the ability to support uh, platform technology development that then can be applied against mission-relevant targets. We also have the ability to, to reach out uh, globally for interesting technologies and to try to help the companies through partnerships and opening up networks to to many of our stakeholders to support them move for moving forward. Of course, there's the cost share, one to one, and and there's the reinvestment mechanism to generate uh, future impact. So we believe um, this this type of partnership uh, and others can contribute to the larger mission of trying to strengthen biodefense and. Um, health security broadly. Um, the pandemic, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, illustrated how quickly the biotechnology sector can react and produce effective health security mechanisms, and how important also, it illuminated how important is a robust and integrated biodefense ecosystem. Uh, so we support the development of additional tools in the toolbox to build and foster that ecosystem and to, um, to, to highlight that the that collaboration between the private public sector to um, advance most effectively these types of mechanisms we think is critical. And uh, we believe the partnership we have with BARDA Ventures and the larger BARDA team is one of those tools that can contribute and we hope to grow over time. Um, I would I would just like to end um, to, to thank you again for uh, the opportunity to speak and, and really to recognize also um, our partners at BARDA who have been uh, outstanding uh, from day one and throughout and have done even more than they committed to do at the start and have been wonderful collaborators and, and partners. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Patel, uh, I was interested in hearing your remarks about the fact that these companies are better off if they don't have a, uh, if their product, or they have a, either a product that can be used outside of a of a emergency situation in the commercial market, or an, at least another program, so that if this one fails, um, they still have a, a viable uh, concern. Um, but, so, but 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 I've seen examples where um, it hasn't worked out so well. The, the uh, company is well funded by BARDA. Um, they might hire more staff, make investments, and then something changes. For instance, the variant changes. So thanks thanks a lot, but we don't need you anymore, and it can be painful. So how, how does how does BARDA protect companies from sort of having the you know going from a very good partner to all of a sudden having the rug pulled out from them because, for whatever reasons, they're no longer going to be funded. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll comment in, in a little bit of a generality on this because I think, I think one of the ways to, to 
um, to address that that concern is 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 focusing on technologies that are just fundamentally can have multiple use cases, right? Um, and I think there's a variety of approaches there. You know, I think if uh, developing for, Bar- a- for Barta to do that or for the companies to do that. For the company to do that and for Barta to support that. And I think that's part of our partnership here is to, is to focus on those that, that do have multiple paths of success. Because I think, I mean, in, in clearly there, there's a lot that can change in terms of the specific nature of the threat of, of what's commercially viable and things like that. And having, you know, for example, a vaccine platform that's just inherently flexible and can be used for, for you know, a, a variety of kinds of things, you know, just puts, puts a company in a position where they can be successful in, in multiple ways. Um, I think, um, I think for, for us, we also generally view a partnership with a company as, as just a, as a method of de-risking the company overall, right? We're working to get any product through an FDA licensure will presumably help the company, you know, know, they would know how to go through the process and that would help them in other ventures as well. So, um, of course, you know, it doesn't always work out, but, but I think in general, focusing on these threat agnostic platform-based technologies is, is sort of the way to go. Thank you. And Dr. Abood, um, you referenced the fact that you also invite venture capital uh, funds to participate in these companies. Is that right? So, so uh, we, we are effectively a, a venture capital investment firm uh, inside of a nonprofit organization that has a, a strategic mission overlay now in partnership with BARDA. So we will um, co-invest with other investors in companies of interest um, and have tried to work with um, with many in, in the field. And as we go forward, we hope we'll continue to do to do even more to, um, to leverage um, both dollars and expertise and support for the companies that would be part of our portfolio. So you do bring in outside VCs as part of the investment pool. Is that right? We, we would co-invest it with companies. Co-invest, uh, the, right, the, right. Yes. So uh, one of the things that, that I've observed is that um, 90% or something like that of biotech programs fail. Uh, and so it's, it's a high-risk proposition for, for investors to begin with. And then when you're specializing in this biodefense world, it's particularly risky because in m- many instances, you don't have any uh, a market outside of the government. So, um, so my question is, for those other VCs that co-invest with you, how does the fact that they're co- co-investing with you, um, does that make it less risky for those other VCs? Is that, what brings them in? Is it your stamp of approval that you've vetted these companies or that you, their risk is, is lessened by participating with you? Um, so, so very good question. I think each of each of the investors in any of these companies will be making their their own determination as to the the um, basis in which to in, to invest. Um, our sense from our time together uh, in the past year is that many companies, as well as some of the interested investors in those companies, see additional value to having a co-investor as ourselves uh, with a strategic mission focus and a network of partnerships that include BARDA. Um, but uh, th- they will independently, each each and every one of them, make their, their own decisions. Okay. Thank you. Uh, Senator Daschle. Well, thank you both for your very helpful presentations and the insights you've offered. I Dr. Patel, I, I, I'd like to just ask if you could 
share the degree to which you think BARDA is at the table as all of the policy decisions are being made as we look at the plan uh, as it's going to be presented and and as we think about public policy generally, I, 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 there, 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 there seems to be significant interagency overlap. There seems to be a, for good reason, uh, an appreciation of the somewhat dominant role that NIH plays. But BARDA has a specific role. ASPER has a specific role. And I just would love to have you comment, if you can, on the degree to which you think this multi-agency universe is understood, appreciated, and that BARDA has the voice and the and the opportunities to weigh in as these policy decisions are being made. So, um, first of all, I think there there clearly is a, a web of sort of interagency activity that I think all you know each sort of. Um, uh, um, does something different for the the greater cause, and you know we work closely with NIH, and we work closely with with DARPA and other places at DoD. Um, you know we share investment deals with um, with with our energy energy colleagues, and you know uh, hear about sort of uh, research and development activities. So, so I think there's a fair level of sort of coordination and, and sharing that happens there. In, in terms of your question on on the uh, whether BARDA needs more of a seat at the table, I I will say. Um, that I think the role that Barda plays is is in the story of, of Barda's contribution is is probably not told uh, uh, enough. Um, and I think um, I think I'm biased, obviously, but I, I have a great appreciation for the specific public-private partnerships that that you know we're engaged in to to advance some of these technologies through really the hardest part of the process of these 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 clinical trial processes and de-risking that. So I think there's a lot of lessons learned. I think there's a lot um, in terms of you know, shaping our approach in the future that, um, you know, I, I think it, I, I think it should be considered, um, in terms of our rural approach, but, but, but yeah, we, we, we have lots of, you know, our, 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 uh, coordination with DOD has, I have not been directly involved in all of that, but, um, I know has deepened over the last three years, uh, in terms of working really closely with them on executing a lot of these partnerships and things like that. So, so certainly there's, there's a lot of coordination going on. So if I could just drill down uh, briefly, uh, it, it, as a commission, as we make our recommendations on how the roles of these important agencies are determined and the extent to which we can ensure that there is the kind of interagency cooperation and, in my view, a recognition of the need to elevate BARDA and ASPR in particular, is there a a recommendation you can share with the commission as to how we might go about doing that with regard to providing more direction? I think that, you know, going forward, the having greater clarity on, on roles and responsibilities, I think will only help us in terms of a response, especially one that's going to catch us off guard um, in the future. And so, so to the extent that, that that gets, you know, clarified over time, I think that's just helpful in general. Um, I think uh, a lot of the approaches that BARDA um, does day in and out were actually, you know, the basis of Operation Warp Speed and, and how that 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 functioned. And so I think, um, yeah, I think I think having that level of of visibility is going to be important for for preparing for the future. Thank you, uh, Dr. Bud. Let me just ask you: Could you comment on the degree to which? Uh, your experiences in dealing with more than one federal agency 
simultaneously has has evolved is it is it hard for an organization like yours to deal with the federal government in a multi-agency capacity i mean you've obviously got a good relationship with barda but how does it work when you have to deal with more than just barda and i what what counsel what 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 experience have you had in that context that you might share with the commission as to how we might facilitate greater multi-agency engagement for an organization like yours um, thank you for the question um, in my um, prior life um, b- before GHIC working with with the government um, the um, interagency activities seem to to integrate nicely in terms of the uh, focus on advancing programs with handoffs across different uh, different agencies. Um, we're just beginning dialogue through BARDA, really with their assistance, with other agencies about the work we're doing and how it can align with some of their efforts. And we found uh, quite an interest in, in those conversations. So we're quite optimistic that, at least in our work, that there's opportunities for um, cooperation, collaboration, uh, joint efforts still to come. Thank you both. We appreciate very much your being with us today. Thanks, Tom. Secretary Shalala. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Dr. Abood, uh, in your prior life, you worked on the AIDS issues. And, uh, and it took years to get the agencies to work together more smoothly. Was there an organizational form that we can learn from our experience with AIDS that would be helpful in this area? Was it strong leadership from the White House? Was it um, was it the AIDS advisors that pulled these pieces together? What's your experience in that area? Um, thank you for the question. I, I think the um, it was several. I think mm-hmm. those, as well as the important uh, work being done you know, th- throughout uh, the NIH, um, USAID, um, uh, other agencies coming together and um, meeting, discussing, and uh, supporting different elements of uh, important programmatic threads, mm-hmm. uh, along with other foundations and governments. Um, so I think there was, a, 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 it started at the top, mm-hmm. uh, but, but it was really um, a, a focus uh, that, that I think um, flowed throughout the, the relevant agencies in, in, a, in a productive way. And of course, there were, and still are, organizations, including the, the one that I had been affiliated with earlier, IAVI and others, and of course important work um, at the Gates Foundation and other other places that are contributing into the the larger picture effort. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Patel, um, what have you learned from your mistakes? I mean, not, I wouldn't describe them as mistakes because we we fund you to take risks. So um, how has your thinking evolved in, in terms of investments? Yeah, and so I mean, I think it's important to acknowledge that we're. This is all you know. This, we need to appreciate risk and embrace mm-hmm. risk and fail Absolutely. fast, fail early, Absolutely. like we were talking about. And that, I that's withdraw the, the word mis- mistakes. <laughs> They're all learnings, right? They're opportunities yeah. to learn, and and, and over time. Um, so, I mean, I think from an investment perspective, I think we, you know, philosophically within Drive across all the investments, you know, recognize that we have to invest in approaches that we know may not work. And we need to run through the test to figure out what, whether they could or not. Because I think when we've 
find ourselves in an emergency situation, there's there's a, a huge movement to lower risk, right? Pick out the things that we know are likely to work and then not invest in other things, you know? And so if we can do this prior to the emergency, right? And we have the time, the patients to actually test them, to take those risks, that puts us in a better position later on. I think that's something that we embrace in our investments, that we, we take risks on new entrepreneurs, we take risks on new categories of investment, of, of, of technologies, of things like that. So so that's just fundamental to how we operate. And I think it's important we when we, not every project works out, but we learn something from it and we can pivot to the next thing as we go along. Um, and that applies to other other interagency partners as well. We learn from their mistakes and, and what they've, you know, what's worked and hasn't worked from their perspective. In terms of operational, um, like the, the models, the partnership models and things like that, I mean, in many ways, this is an experiment for us, this partnership with, with um, with with the Global Health Investment Corporation, it's an entirely new uh, way for us to invest, and so you know we're we're continually trying to push the boundaries on on these these partnership vehicles, knowing again that um, if we do this right now, um, that we can learn and and refine and improve, and that we'll be in a position where these partnerships will will be useful later on. Um, and so we're constantly trying to think about new partnership models. The partnership with Johnson Johnson on this J Labs is another example of us, you know, developing an entirely new type of partnership. And we're continuing to kind of invent these. Um, I worry a little about um, identifying only products that may have multiple uses because of the commercial value, because I think we set up Barda so that um, we didn't have to do just that. Can you talk yeah. about that a little bit? Yeah. So what I meant by that too is just that that was sort of pre-assuming that that the vast majority of work is on you know specific products that are going through kind of advanced development. I think what and we, we don't know right now whether they might have another use. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly we always learn from from any project, right? And it applies to others. I think what the point that I would make is that in addition to specific product development, we also need to invest in these platforms because. You know, I'll just give you a sort of a conceptual example here, right? If we had a, a vaccine manufacturing technology that could cut the cost of vaccine development in half and speed it by, by you know, um, uh, by twice the amount, that puts us in a position to actually develop more vaccines with the same amount of resources, right? Um, and so I think these things are critical. These sort of platform-based approaches are critical and will actually enhance our other work. Um, yeah. Congressman Brooks. PAPA is going to be reauthorized, we hope, in 2023. It's scheduled to be. And uh, what authorities or what um, changes would you make, Dr. Patel, to PAPA to enhance the work of BARDA? And do you have congressional champions that really understand what you're doing? So there's there's two things that sort of come to mind here, and and one is, and they're all sort of in the the frame of of flexibility and adaptability, and 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 you know maximizing our, our impact. I think one is, um, just like this partnership with with global and global health investment corporation, I think we need flexible investment tools. One that I think is going to be incredibly useful is um, uh, is a. a the ability to administer loans and, and deploy capital that way, um, uh, similar to how the Department of Energy does in, the, in its loan program, I think this this would allow a, enormous flexibility in terms of um, investment and capacity and in, in, uh, capital expenditures, stuff like that. That I think are going to, um, you know, whether it's biomanufacturing innovation or lots of the other other things, will be incredibly useful, um, flexible tool. And we've we've certainly. Um, um, 
uh, advocated for that that uh, authority. The the second is um, uh, really this. This goes back to the threat agnostic piece. I think you know Barda is obviously um, um, focused on specific threat areas, um, and I think what we've seen is a lot of technologies are being advanced in other areas that have synergies or could be applied. And I think um, we're also seeing this with um, uh, investments in diagnostics, in which you know there's there's a um, there's an enormous diagnostic capacity right now that that's focused on COVID and and. You know, I think ensuring a sustainable diagnostics market will will probably be underpinned by these diagnostics being useful for other things, right? So, like, you know, everything from like sort of wellness, multi biomarker testing, these all these other use cases will actually help our ability to sustain a diagnostics market for for COVID and future emergencies. So, so having flexibility in terms of threat areas, and and I think is going to be enormously useful because that'll help us invest in in some of these threat agnostic technologies that that will be important. Does um, do you have legislative limits on your investments? I don't know enough about. Uh, are there are there parameters around uh, the investments that you make? So you've got these companies that you're working with, twenty five or so that you say you're funding uh, right now. But I mean, how many potentially would you like to work with, and um, what type of limitations? Have have we, uh, you know, or has Congress put on what you all choose to invest in or not invest in, and and maybe there are no limitations. And I'd be interested in hearing from you, uh, Mr. Abood, whether or not there's any limitation on on you know what the potential could be. So I'll have to get back to you on specifics. I don't want to misspeak on this, but um, but I think. You know, BARDA is focused on on um, pandemic influenza, on um, CBRN threats, um, and then there's a category of emerging infectious diseases that that um, you know I, I think there's a lot that can be done there. Obviously, this hits on all the pandemic preparedness uh, activity, and, and I think th- there's a lot that could be done for unknown diseases or diseases that we know might have pandemic potential, but, 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 you know, BARDA doesn't have specific funding to, to address. So I think that whole area needs a lot more attention generally. And I think that there's a limitation in terms of, you know, what, what is included in that category. Um, so, so the, um, our agreement with, with BARDA does have a, a ceiling over time in terms of the amount of investment that, that can be provided. Um, and it's a, a, a portion, obviously, of, of the f- total funding that, that BARDA is deploying across all the other tools in, in the toolbox. And um, uh, in it grants, contracts, purchase, um, ma- manufacturing, et cetera. Um, I think we are optimistic that we can utilize the funding provided under this agreement and that hopefully continue the work uh, on a go-forward basis with, with additional funds um, as we as we deploy capital into investments that are making a difference in uh, technology development, and are you attracting a, a number of other venture funds to to partner with you? And has that been successful? So we have um, in in all of our investments to date, we've we've been co-investing with others. the The amount of money coming from the co-investors, um, which, which uh, is, is a magnitude above the money that we've provided so far in those investments. Um, we will also be continuing to, to um, work with other potential investors to, to bring forward more capital into, into our work together. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for your important work.
And uh, ex officio member Dr. Troy, I believe, has a question. Yes, thank you for your testimony and for your good work. This question is for both of you. What you are doing is so essential and it is really based on cooperation with the private sector and the private sector developing the necessary tools for defending against uh, bio threats. And I've seen a couple of items in the Wall Street Journal in the past few weeks about the Biden administration's cancer elimination efforts and the way that they are running uh, into the new challenges given to the biomedical field based on the Inflation Reduction Act, including a reduction in exclusivity windows and in reimbursement. Have you guys looked into the Inflation Reduction Act and what, what it does to biodevelopment companies and what the impact might have on your ability to create defenses against biothreats? Uh, I have not looked into that specifically, but would definitely welcome a discussion on, on that and can, you can look into it, but yeah. Uh, similarly, we, we have not, um, uh, it has not uh, been a, a subject that companies that we're working with have have uh, have raised, but it, it would be something we, should, we would look forward to discussing. I'd be happy to have that conversation with you offline. Well, thank you both. Thank you, Dr. Patel. Thank you, Dr. Abood, for uh, being with us and for the great work you're doing. Senator Daschle. Thank you, Jim. I think what we will do in the interest of time is just uh, take on our sixth panel, and uh, I just uh, encourage anybody who wishes to refresh themselves with some coffee. Uh, it's right outside the room, but uh, we'll uh, we'll get started with our, our, our final panel for the day. Um, thank you again, both of you, for your excellent presentations. We thank our final panel for their patience uh, and uh, their willingness to, to join us this afternoon. Uh, we have three very, very uh, highly respected experts. Uh, uh, Dr. Arlie Newry, the Assistant Secretary of Congressional Intergovernmental Affairs at DOE. Uh, Dr. Gilda Barbino, the President of the American Association for the Advancement of Science and the President of Olin College of Engineering. And then Stu Solomon, the president and CEO of Connected DMV. Welcome. We're delighted you're with us and, again, appreciate your willingness to, to join us uh, late in the day. But uh, we really look forward to your presentation. And, and, uh, and uh, we'll start with you, Dr. Nori. Thank you, Senator, and uh, thank you, Commissioners. Honored to be with you today. Uh, as the Senator said, I'm Ali Nouri. I run our Office of Congressional Intergovernmental Affairs. And in case you're wondering why the congressional guy is up here talking about COVID-19 in my previous life, I was a biologist and have the uh, privilege of serving on the White House Task Force on Pandemic Innovation. Um, but more importantly, why, why is the Department of Energy uh, doing on pandemic response? I think that's, that's a question that I was not um, uh, really aware of that breadth and depth of the activities of our national labs when I first joined the department. Um, we, we have 17 uh, national labs, uh, really with one-of-a-kind uh, capabilities throughout the country, and uh, they can really pivot uh, both in terms of their instrumentation as well as their workforce to really tackle any crisis. So early on during the pandemic, uh, the National Virtual Biotechnology Laboratory, or NVBL for short, 
was established to coordinate and direct the labs to fight COVID-19. Let me just provide three examples out of literally dozens of uh, successes to illustrate these capabilities. Um, first, uh, we run these light sources. These are uh, these amazingly powerful instruments that can reveal the molecular and atomic structures of uh, subcomponents of viruses and bacteria. And those molecular level images uh, of the virus were instrumental in the development of all three vaccines that currently uh, are in use in the United States, as well as uh, in antiviral drugs. Uh, just as an, and, and, and this is where the public-private partnership that you were talking about earlier is really important. Just one example of Pfizer's Paxlovid pill, which uh, 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 many have taken. Um, uh, I won't ask for a show of hands here because I think it'll be a HIPAA violation. Uh, but it, it actually has cut deaths and hospitalizations by 90%. It would not have been possible without Argonne National Lab's advanced photon source, uh, which was used to assess exactly how at the molecular level that the Paxlovid, uh, uh, the active ingredient in Paxlovid can uh, grab one of the virus's proteins to neutralize it. Uh, another major asset are supercomputers, some of the fastest uh, computers in the world with remarkable predictive properties. Scientists at Oak Ridge National Lab, for example, successfully used one of these uh, supercomputers to come up with 58 candidate molecules uh, that could neutralize the virus. They would, of course, have to be validated in a lab su uh, subsequently. Um, and, and they did this by feeding the supercomputer information about the virus, including these high-resolution images uh, that were developed at the various light sources. And in a matter of two days, uh, they, they came up with those 58 candidates. This would have taken years um, without the use of those supercomputers. Uh, these supercomputers were also uh, critical in helping the CDC model disease spread. Uh, uh, there's, there's only so much, of course, a typical computer can do on these uh, uh, disease modeling. Uh, the supercomputers were able to use those traditional models and overlay them with information uh, collected online, uh, uh, hospital infection rates, even hospital staffing rates. And all of that information was actually used by local policymakers on their opening and uh, closing decisions in their jurisdictions. Uh, one final example, uh, when the country uh, was short on N95 masks because we had lost the manufacturing capability of those of those masks, uh, the, the scientists and engineers, again, down at Oak Ridge National Lab, used the department's carbon fiber technologies facility. This is a state-of-the-art materials research facility at Oak Ridge to prototype a cost-effective way to manufacture N95s. And then that technology was subsequently transferred to two companies that began mass producing those uh, masks for the public. So these are just a few out of a dozen examples, dozens of examples, that demonstrates how relatively little funding, $100 million, of, uh, which was allocated by Congress, uh, uh, led to incredible capabilities. The, the Paxlovid pill itself, uh, Pfizer issued a press release a couple weeks ago suggesting it would have $22 billion in sales this year. So just a remarkable return on investment. So in that regard, um, our recommendations are 
Uh, threefold. First, we should make pandemic preparedness a permanent initiative within the Department of Energy and provide adequate funding to prepare for future pandemics. Uh, DOE uh, is the nation's leader in the physical sciences and computing, and these capabilities really provide valuable support to other agencies that lead in these pandemic efforts, whether it's NIH, CDC, FDA, and others. And investing in these capabilities at DOE over the long term will ensure that the best uh, expertise is available when the next uh, disease emerges. Uh, Second, we should bring a biosecurity focus back to the Department of Energy. Uh, our, our laboratories, whether they're run by the Office of Science, uh, the National Nuclear Security Administration, or Applied Program Offices, these are all part of the DOE complex, have the capability to conduct both open source but also classified research. Um, the Department's Office of Intelligence and Counterintelligence, uh, for example, uh, also effectively can utilize the lab science and technology capabilities to produce threat-based assessments on the classified side. Uh, And a bigger focus on biosecurity as a cross-cut function across DOE would really leverage these tremendous science and uh, technology capabilities, both on the natural side as well as the human-made threats. And finally, uh, we should include the Department of Energy in interagency working groups focused on biodefense, including pandemic preparedness and response. Uh, The impact that Uh, the labs have had against COVID-19, again, in the open source arena, um, as well as the analysis that the labs conducted on the classified side to help identify, um, assess the origins of COVID-19, which was, of course, a directive of the president to the uh, intelligence community on the 90-day sprint to assess the origins of COVID. Uh, These all highlight the critical capabilities of the science and technology enterprise and uh, inclusion of DOE in those interagency working groups will really help ensure these capabilities are effectively integrated into our national preparedness and response. Um, So in conclusion, let me just again thank you for the honor to appear before you. And let me also say that um, uh, just as they have since their beginnings during during the Manhattan Project some 80 years ago, the scientists and engineers at the DOE National Labs remain ready to address our nation's toughest challenges As demonstrated uh, during the COVID crisis, DOE has a valuable role to play in supporting the nation in biosecurity preparedness and response. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Nuri, for an excellent presentation. Dr. Barbino. Thank you, Senator, and members of the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense for this opportunity to share my perspective. I'm a chemical engineer by training with an interest in global health and interdisciplinary research and education. For many years, the research enterprise has recognized the importance of convergence, bringing together a diverse array of disciplines like physical sciences, engineering, and computational sciences to generate innovative ideas and discoveries. Our national and global response to the COVID-19 pandemic illustrates this point. But more importantly, it revealed a more valuable story that the diversity of people and cultures, the partnerships between government and industry and academia, and collaboration between nations for scientific research and discovery, in addition to a conversion of research disciplines, can accelerate the innovation cycle to benefit society for all. 
You've heard about this already, but I'll remind you, in the span of six months, scientists went from the first isolation of the virus to complete molecular characterization of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the scientific characterization and drive to develop treatments and vaccines in such short order was unprecedented. None of this would have been possible without federal support for research and development made decades ago that provided the foundation upon which to build and accelerate novel approaches to tackling COVID-19. Many of us have heard of Katalin Karako, a biochemist from Hungary whose research on mRNA technology and therapies ultimately led to the development of COVID-19 vaccines. Her initial research was funded by the NIH in the late 1990s, and Dr. Fauci reminded us of that work earlier. The ability of scientists to quickly pivot and apply their existing research in related fields to tackling the pandemic was critical. A notable example is Kismikia Corbett, who used her expertise in the MERS virus to better understand the spike protein that allows the SARS virus to attach to human cells. Her research at NIH helped scientists like Carico advance the development of vaccines. Sharing biological material, scientific information, and data is also valuable. The ability of the United States scientists to successfully sequence antibodies from COVID-19 patients relied on blood samples from patients in Wuhan, and those sequences done by U.S. scientists were then shared with AstraZeneca. At the American Association for the Advancement of Science, where I serve as president, the journal Science has for years affirmed a policy of rapid access to research data and papers in the event of a public health emergency. Though welcome, access to data and research results does pose challenges in the context of balancing peer review of research results to ensure its rigor while expediting results in a timely fashion, a challenge when facing a global pandemic. This can be even more complex when introducing private sector research where there's interest in protecting proprietary and confidential information. It's a complex dance that requires taking risk and building trust. The commission's report outlined many thoughtful recommendations, including the importance of public-private partnerships. With the COVID-19 pandemic and the emerging threats of monkeypox and reemergence of polio here in the United States, it's important to look for solutions to address immediate challenges while we look to the future and looking to the future. To truly advance innovation through partnerships, we must cultivate meaningful partnerships representing a diversity of disciplines, people, and sectors. That is between multi-tier research institutions, between industry and academia, and between government and the institutions that conduct research and train the next generation of STEM professionals. I also serve as president of Olin College of Engineering, and a fundamental part of our philosophy is that learning occurs through immersion in real-world applications, and that undergraduate students, not just career scientists engineers, can contribute to the solutions while learning and creating value. Also, looking to the future, we must improve data interoperability to enhance information sharing between government industry, and academia, and between nations. For public health data in particular, the data must be reflective of society and its diverse populations. So in short, as I conclude, effective partnerships to combat future biological threats 
are more likely when there's diversity amongst the partners and their work, data and information sharing across levels and sectors, and the substantial and sustained investment of resources for research and development that's aligned with our needs. With that, I thank you again. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Barbino, for excellent presentation. Song? Thank you, Senator and Commission, for having us here today and for the important work that you do. Uh, I'm Stu Solomon. I'm CEO of a nonprofit called Connected DMB. We're regional, and we take on complex public-private collaborations to address some of our region, nation, and world's most critical issues. Um, SARS-CoV-2 has been addressed with a heroic uh, yet incomplete solution set. COVID-19 did, in fact, discriminate, and so did our response. Frontline healthcare workers, first responders, they were relatively unprotected until vaccines arrived. Vulnerable populations who are immunocompromised, immunodeficient, or immunosuppressed, all of whom are unable to benefit from those mRNA and vectored vaccines were and remain largely unprotected. High-risk populations with comorbidities were also largely unprotected until the arrival of vaccines. Our country requires a full arsenal of medical countermeasures stockpiled and ready to deploy when outbreaks occur. In the early stages of COVID-19, uh, 50 regional cross-sector leaders in Washington, D.C. came together and authorized an initiative to create a strategy and a plan to help prevent future pandemics. This led to a comprehensive six-month strategic planning phase led by the infectious disease uh, specialist, Dr. James Crow of the Vanderbilt University Medical Center and other renowned scientists and cross-sector experts. Connected DMV formed the Global Pandemic Prevention and Biodefense Center in 2021 as an initiatives-based nonprofit focused on gaps in global pandemic preparedness where cross-sector collaboration is required. The center summary level strategic plan can be found at pandemicpreventionplan.org. The center is led by a nonprofit steering uh, committee. It's comprised of leaders and experts and scientists from federal, state, and local government, from nonprofits, from India, uh, India, from industry, academia, healthcare, biotech, defense, and pharma. Um, and we're very fortunate to have Dr. Asha George and Congressman Greenwood as, as uh, advisors and key steering committee members from the beginning. This Global Pandemic Prevention and Biodefense Center with its first recommended initiative called Ahead 100 will help prevent epidemic outbreaks from becoming pandemics by developing in advance a stockpile of human monoclonal antibodies for emerging infectious diseases. This is the first project. This effort is structured as a public-private collaboration, and it's akin to what we see in some international organizations such as CEPI. Uh, that would be the closest analogy. And for a little perspective, a portfolio of human monoclonal antibodies, or MABs as we call them, produced in advance is a necessary weapon in the nation's medical countermeasures arsenal, alongside diagnostics, vaccines, and other therapeutics. It's interesting today, at the end of the day, that we this is the first time I believe that we're talking about human monoclonal antibodies uh, after a, a great day of pandemic prevention discussion. 
these MABs provide immediate and prophylactic immunity and therapy to affected communities. MABs are safe and effective in populations who are not ideal vaccine candidates, including the very young, the old, and the immunocompromised, as well as potentially a portion of the vaccine-hesitant community. As such, these MABs are the best solution to halt early outbreaks due to their immediate prophylactic immune protection. They provide the fastest and best way to protect first responders, frontline workers, healthcare workers, and anyone in these public service settings. They can now be uh, administered intramuscular with a shot in the arm, and thereby reducing uh, some of the previous logistical and technical challenges that we all read about. MABs do not require boosting or second or third doses. One dose can protect for up to nine months, and the, which would be the critical period, I think, of any uh, epidemic outbreak. Um, and for a rough analogy, the way we look at this is if you were walking down the street and about to engage in a fight or had already been punched in the face, um, you could go to school and go get trained to be able to fight, but it would be too late. Or you could push a button and have a Navy SEAL do the fighting for you. <laughs> That's the model that MABs provide. And if we think about the important population that these MABs address, it's important that they have protection. The most needy and the most vulnerable, the immunocompromised, the elderly and the young, in this example, the frontline healthcare workers and the other first responders, they have to have immediate protection. They can't wait for the, for the system to learn how to respond. They need a responder for them. So this program will ultimately develop and stockpile MABs for the 100 pathogens across 15 to 25 pathogen families. This is entirely consistent with BARDA's determination to develop medical countermeasures for the top 20 pathogens. We applaud and support both the Athena Agenda and AP3. Both are comprehensive, they're both needed, and progress has been good. We specifically support the call to fully prioritize, fund, and incentivize the medical countermeasure enterprise. As Representative Brooks, I think you expressed earlier today, we want to break this cycle of panic to neglect. We've just been through panic. We're moving into a phase, hopefully not of neglect. It's time that we break that cycle and provide the structures necessary for ongoing support. We support the AP3 goals to rapidly respond to novel threats and to advance innovations in MAB manufacturing to lower the cost and accelerate the delivery time and to transform the regulatory pathways to better account for key innovations and advances and to apply the learnings from COVID MAB development to improve the overall ecosystem. Um, we also observe that AP3 is focused on many critical components such as advanced research and innovations and approaches, platforms and manufacturing and the like without possibly a clear set of specific countermeasures needed for specific known threats such as the 26 viral families that Athena calls for addressing. Investing in these research platforms can enable us to respond better to the next infectious disease epidemic or outbreak. However, investing in specific countermeasures can enable us to actually prevent those outbreaks from becoming pandemics. We have four very brief specific recommendations, if I may. The first would be that the commission encourage nonprofit partnership models as you do that are one to many. There are many bilateral arrangements that exist between single parties and the government, and those are useful and necessary, uh, but we also need one to many models so that we can scale 
and innovate better and also leverage the limited resources that are present within our government departments and agencies. We also recommend that the Commission advocate for a non-discriminating equitable portfolio of medical countermeasures that also prioritizes MABs. Thirdly, uh, that the Commission advocate for medical countermeasures that treat and fund prevention of pandemics with the same or higher diligence and priority as that of response. And through our center specifically, we would request that the Commission work with us to help secure the dedicated funding from Congress to ASPR and BARDA so that they can basically authorize programs such as this uh, public-private collaboration. And with that, thank you. Uh, very pleased to be with you today. Well, again, thank you, Mr. Solomon, for a very good presentation and uh, particularly for your recommendations. I want to follow up a little bit on that. Dr. Henry, I'm, I'm going to ask you, if, if, if you go back to the creation of the NBBL, um, as you look back, are there things you do differently? since it was established, or are you pretty satisfied with the way it's played out? Uh, thank you for the question, Senator. Um, I, given uh, the $100 million appropriation uh, led to just a tremendous amount of uh, very practical innovation, I would say uh, we are really more than satisfied at the way it would play out, it, that, that it played out. And if we were to do uh, things differently, I would say uh, probably we would add a couple of things. One, more funding is always going to be important. Uh, we feel like the national labs have the capability, the capacity to absorb uh, more funding and uh, build out the pandemic response for future pandemics. Uh, the second area where I think uh, uh, we could we could do things um, a little differently is to really pull in um, uh, even more resources uh, within the department. Just just to give you an example, sir, um, uh, our applied energy offices, for example, uh, our energy efficiency renewable energy office runs a uh, building technologies program that looks at airflow within buildings. And the reason they do that is to better understand energy flows, work on energy efficiency. Uh, but this group with um, very little funding, separate from uh, NVBL's work, uh, did some really interesting work to look at how aerosols uh, that the, the virus rides on uh, flow in an indoor environment. Uh, they also uh, uh, looked at uh, different kinds of ultra, far ultraviolet light disinfectants um, as a means to potentially disinfect uh, 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 indoor spaces um, against COVID-19 and, and, and other viruses. And, and I think that sort of activity that was going on in our applied energy offices, as well as some of the activities that were going on uh, in our intelligence office and counterintelligence office, um, as well as ones in the National Nuclear Security Agency, all of which have a role um, in, 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 in biodefense could be better integrated. Well, thank you. Thank you for that very good answer. Dr. Barbina, COVID-19 placed significant strain on essential frontline professionals, including those working in healthcare and public health. How do you suggest the federal government partner with the scientific and medical and academic community to tackle the, the physical and the mental health impact on healthcare and the public health workforces? 
I'm glad you um, raised that issue because as we look at how we respond to a, um, a threat, how our our providers are being um, treated and how, how they are, are managing the system is a threat. And I think we actually need a national level initiative. It's not just an individual uh, institution or, or um, hospital or whatever. It's, it's like across the whole country. And if we would have some kind of national level effort, treat this like the crisis that it is so that we actually look at what are those needs that we need to meet for those individuals to be whole and be able to support us. Um, I think that's where we need to go. It's unbelievable the stress that people have been put under. And I think that these are the kinds of jobs that are, are difficult under any circumstances. And now we've seen the strain that has been placed on them in this particular response to a pandemic. So a national level connected response just like we're trying to build partnerships around how to deal with the threats, we need to treat that as a threat and build partnerships around supporting the people who are the providers. Well, I couldn't agree more. I think we're still experiencing a lot of that stress and that uh, extraordinary strain that uh, that these professionals, uh, we, we've admired their heroic work, but I don't think we've acknowledged it as a priority in terms of how we deal with that going forward. Ms. Solomon, I'm told the center brings together about 70 federal labs, 800 life science companies, multiple government agencies, 175 embassies, and diplomatic missions. Uh, I was interested in your, especially your first recommendation as you were describing, how do you manage alliances given the varying missions and resources, and how do you keep everyone arranged in a productive manner given the extraordinary diversity and and size that we're talking about here well thank you senator the um you know the we we viewed it as we have a choice we can either work in silos independently and hope that it all comes together at the end or we can try to pull the necessary parties together and so what what we've done with the steering committee is we have used the steering committee as, as that springboard, if you will, into the organizations that sit behind them. And uh, so the steering committee provides us a more consolidated way to approach that and manage that. So there are regional organizations, there are natural, national organizations, organi organizations like CEPI, CDC, WHO that have reached well beyond their own organizations. Um, and so uh, we work hard on that. We don't work directly with thousands of organizations. We really do it through the, the strength of our steering committee. Well, that's very helpful. Thank you. Jim? Thank you, Senator. Um, starting with you, uh, Mr. Norrie, you, you, um, as you were describing some of the contributions that the labs made to the uh, pandemic, it seemed that, at least in the examples you gave, that uh, basic research was going on and then looking at the needs of the pandemic for computer services, for developing how, how to make masks, et cetera. Um, it looked like basic work research was going on. And then you, as a recommendation, you said that you thought that uh, Congress should fund um, sort of a, a standing biodefense preparedness capacity at the labs. And my question is, how then would, um, how, what would that look like, and how would the, the researchers at the labs decide on what sort of kinds of preparedness science they should be working on? 
because it's really an applied um, uh, use of science there, right? That's uh, that's right. Thank you for that question, Congressman. Um, and and you, and and you raise, you raise a great point because these scientists and engineers are busy folks. Uh, they're they're tending to their other roles. Um, I would say part of the answer is that um, uh, a lot of these uh, this this work is a dual uh, a dual hatted type of work, if you will. For example. Um, the the scientists and engineers that uh, run some of our supercomputer uh, operating facilities are in, in in many cases already doing that work on the use of those supercomputers uh, for uh, climate models um, and, and 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 other kinds of functions and uh, the reason why uh, they were so successful with respect to NVBL was because that capacity and that workforce was already there and they could quickly pivot. Um, and, and address a new role. And uh, in doing so, I should also emphasize that uh, uh, the, the, the labs really uh, took advantage of what we call the user facilities. These user facilities are, uh, there's 28 of them. Uh, they're spread across the country. Uh, these supercomputers, light sources, for example, make up the user facilities. And these are open to academics um, as well as industry to come and use them. So in many case, cases, it's the academics from the universities or from the companies uh, that, that come to the user facilities and uh, with help from folks that are already familiar with how those things work um, are able to, to uh, get it results pretty quickly. Um, so, so the uh, the uh, the fact that uh, we have these instruments, I think, is really one of the key aspects that made DOE unique. Because, as you can imagine, your typical university or your typical company is not going to be able to afford a billion-dollar light source or a supercomputer that's hundreds of millions of dollars. And by really opening that up and opening up the expertise, uh, we were able to uh, leverage um, the, the impact of those instruments. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Barbarino, um, towards the end of your presentation, you made a recommendation about uh, better sharing of data between, I think you said, academia, government, and industry which sounds like a wonderful aspiration, but I, I'm curious as to what would it take to do that? It seems that, that A, it's a huge, a huge undertaking, and B, um, runs into all sorts of um, turf about, you ain't looking at my data. You know. <laughs> that is absolutely correct, and it is challenging. So one, we have to look at what's confidential and what's not confidential. We need to look at when there are rules that are restrictions and constraints that need to be there and those that don't need to be there. We're so territorial and so protective, as you were mentioning, and maybe we should open that up a bit. When there's a time of crisis, I think people lose some of that um, territoriality and say, okay, I'll share it now. And we need to keep that mindset all the time. It's like, I liked how earlier we were talking about this short-term way of looking at things versus the long-term. So if we're thinking more of the long term, we would think more about how it is in our best interest to share that data and remove some of those constraints around sharing the data. We would look to who we are trying to share the data with. So it was more effective when both the local and the state level and the federal level, municipalities or agencies, organizations were sharing their data around COVID and any other um, threat. So again it's like at every level and it's not just when there is the the 
crisis, but other times to, to say we're going to be willing to share. And it just takes the, the willingness sometimes to just let, to be less territorial and to be more open about the data sharing and the benefit that they, we would get from that data sharing. And to not just limit who we are sharing the data with. I think we saw that it was important for us to not just share data within our own country, but outside of our country in order to get the best results. So maybe it's a building of a, a SOPs, infrastructure, et cetera, for that kind of sharing, at, which doesn't mean you're going to be sharing data all, of all kinds all, all, all the time, but you're prepared, you have a, a, a system so that when something like this happens, you can turn it on and, and data can be readily shared. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think from an engineering perspective, we look at everything as in terms of a systems and a systems approach. And also, as we were talking earlier about some of the things that we need to do, we need a system of interconnectivity that will connect data, that will connect agencies, that will connect partnerships, that will connect the, the different institutions, because it's the lack of that interconnectivity that's really holding us back, be it data or um, the people who are involved. Thank you very much. Stu, um, you talked about the center's goal of, of stockpiling uh, monoclonal antibodies uh, for uh, biodefense purposes. So there's the national stockpile. So could you uh, describe for us how those would interact, what, what similarities there are, what differences there are, what different functions they would perform? Yeah, it's a great question and one that's been debated in the, the center uh, quite a bit and one that we need to work uh, very closely with ASPR on. From a stockpiling perspective, we certainly believe, as we heard earlier today, that we need to meet the adversary uh, where they are. And so the ability to stockpile globally, we think, is certainly important and to have uh, stockpiles in, in close proximity. Um, but in addition, we think the private sector can also play a key role or nonprofits uh, play a key role in stockpiling and not put the full burden on the United States government uh, to do that. So this is one of the issue areas that in, in the next phase of the pandemic center, we intend to have a very uh, specific answer to. We believe across the U.S. that it would be appropriate to have a uh, handful of stockpiled locations and globally, likewise, Possibly seven or eight is uh, the number that we've been debating. So a very, very dispersed stockpile as opposed to one concentrated. In not a, not a centralized stockpile. Partly for proximity, partly to help with uh, getting uh, manufacturing capability in place in a, a distributed area, but also really to be able to have a very quick response and immediate response so that as the outbreak occurs, we can immediately ring fence it. And again, you've got that Navy SEAL fighting for you immediately. There's no pause, wait, let me go to boot camp and, and come back in two weeks or four weeks and then be ready to fight. And so we do think that proximity matters and timing is critical. Yep. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Thank you. Susan? Thanks. I'm going to stay with the stockpile questions a, a little bit. Um, have you also, and I appreciate that you've had a lot of debate and discussion about what the relationship would be with the strategic national stockpile. Have you talked about other product areas besides monoclonal antibodies that, you know, while we didn't begin talking about those for months, the initial uh, lack was the PPE. And so have you been talking about expanding beyond monoclonal antibodies uh, to other products? And I I'm very curious because obviously um, the federal government funds the strategic national stockpile where is the funding coming from for this 
other stockpile? Yeah, so from a stockpiling perspective, we, um, um, again, the intent is to have a, distri a distributed model. We limited ourselves to MABS as our first initiative, to human monoclonal antibodies as our first initiative. So we didn't take on other domains yet, but it, it's in the vision and design of the center to be able to do so. And so uh, from a funding perspective, the, um, uh, we're working to get fully funded. And in a CEPI-like function uh, format or others, we need the federal government to be able to participate the, the, and to lead in the federal government, uh, yet the appropriations aren't in place to be able to fund such a public-private collaboration. So that's something that we need. I think it w will impact uh, stockpiles. And we've talked some about potential co-location of other, for instance, PPE, but other, other capabilities and products uh, to be stock, uh, stockpiled um, in close proximity or in the same facilities and operating model uh, as we would with MAPS. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Barabino, um, how better can the government partner with academia? Um, I think we're all very concerned uh, when it comes to talent, when it comes to the workforce, um, and we're, we're, when it comes to just our country producing enough scientists, engineers, all of the technical expertise that we need uh, in this country, how can we better partner um, with academia besides just going after the grants that I know academia does all the time, and that's kind of the main partnership that we see, but what other ideas does the organization that you're leading, you know, say that we could, and using this pandemic as the jumping off point of saying, you know, if we did this better, we would be able to have better partnerships with academia. Sure. I think the idea that we focus more on the individuals who we are trying to train as future innovators and leaders in the environments that we create for them to train them. And there, there's, there's so many ways that we need to, to actually look at how we train and who we're training and having people understand the relevance of the work and engaging the communities. I was struck by the conversation earlier about how we actually engage communities and designing the, the design for the, the, the products that, that we're trying to um, come up with. So for example, at, at my institution, we, we have real world project-based, team-based learning. We, meet individuals where they are, and we also look at what it is that's relevant so that they can use their, their training for purposeful work. And if we had a, a, a broader understanding of what that looks like, and then had federal support that the government agencies looking at, an investment in people, and an investment in who gets trained and how they get trained, that would move us forward because right now what we do is we have very traditional models and we stick to them. Mm -hmm. So this openness to try innovative approaches to training for the future, to training for innovation, and the problems that we don't even know about, that I think would definitely help us move forward. Okay. Thank you. See it as an investment. And speaking of innovation and of, you know, so many uh, brilliant folks, the people at our labs, I think, are really unsung heroes and we don't talk about the labs enough and the important work that they do. 
uh, I noticed that is your job description. <laughs> that is what you as the Assistant Secretary are, are doing. How, um, how do you feel, do you feel as if Congress is, understands enough what the labs did during um, the pandemic? How are you educating Congress and uh, the public on what the labs have done during the pandemic well, th and their role for the future? Thank you so much for that question, Congresswoman. I, I think that's a fundamental issue that 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 you've hit on. Uh, we we need to do a better job, quite frankly, of telling the story, um, both both as far as what the labs are doing uh, uh, in in the clean energy space uh, and the innovations that we need uh, to make to. Uh, uh, meet our climate change uh, goals, uh, but also the very work that we did uh, in the National Virtual Biotechnology Laboratory. Um, I think when it comes down to it, uh, uh, members of Congress in particular who represent states uh, with labs, districts with labs, um, they are our biggest champions, right? Because they, because they, they interact with the labs regularly. They appreciate the workforce. They, they appreciate the jobs uh, that those labs bring to the region, the innovation. Um, but I think uh, as, a, as, as a department, uh, one of our goals is certainly to make everyone aware because these are not uh, parochial issues. They're really national issues, global issues, and uh, we need to be a, do a better job of getting the message out. Okay. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you. Let me ask Scooter or Rachel if they have any, any questions. Scooter? All right. Well, listen, we're, we're so grateful to you, not only for your presence today and your eloquent and, and extraordinarily helpful answers, but just for the work you do each and every day and your dedicated commitment to these important challenges we face. We're very grateful for that, and we wish you all the best of luck as you can continue your work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's been a productive day, and I think we will call this uh, to a close. Thank you all for coming.